In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even narrowing watch? down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Diecast Movie Podcast. And today we're going to be doing an interview, and I'm joined by... Eli Craig, director, writer, producer, actor, outward bound instructor. And some of the movies that he's done, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which we reviewed back in episode 50, and Little Evil, and he has something in the works. How are you doing today, Eli? I'm doing good. Good to uh, talk to you, Stephen. Oh, it's great. I'm, how's, how's your um, spring been going so far? Pretty good. We're getting better here. Um I don't know if you know, but we're up in uh, BC in Canada. So oh. we've had, yeah, it's a bit of, bit of a different thing. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was bragging a lot about how good we were doing compared to the States. And, uh, and then we didn't get the vaccine as quick as you guys did. So uh, it's been a bit of a different process, but um, I got my vac- second vaccine yesterday. Feeling pretty good today. And uh, we're going to be traveling south uh, at the end of the week. So finally getting some traveling in. Yay! Oh, I know it's it's one of the great things. I've been I had my second vaccine back in January, um, January or yeah. February, and um, I'm an essential worker, so I was going right into the thing. And uh, it, it's nice that everything is starting to relax. in In Maryland, we have over seventy percent of the state vaccinated, so a lot of the things mm-hmm. it's like are opening up. You, it, it makes it makes life is getting back to normal. And, it, and it's happening yeah. slowly but surely, but things are moving at a good pace. Yeah, I mean, at first when the pandemic happened, I was like, well, this is a great excuse to not see my family as much. And I was like, this could be a really great thing. But uh, over a little bit of time, I was like, well, now this is getting to be a little too much. Uh, and it turns out it's been a year and a half since uh, I've seen some of my family back in California. And we've been trapped on the BC side of the Canadian border. My wife's Canadian. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. I'm, I'm pretty excited we got to uh, spend the pandemic here, but I've, I've been used to traveling a lot more in my life and kind of getting around. And, and right now, uh, Stasis has, has tired me out. I'm ready to keep moving again. So, well, yeah, I, it'll happen soon. I agree. And I think during the, the lockdown, I think everybody comes to appreciate things differently because it was, it was so prolonged. And I think now it's like a, di- a different appreciation and more of um, joy coming out of different things you're able to do, you know, and, and get into that where it was taken for granted before. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, my wife and I thought we were going to kill each other at first. And, uh, you know, a year and a half later, we've worked out our differences. We're stronger than ever. So the flower bed that was dueling as between a flower bed and potential like coffin holder for me if I was really bad. You know, it was like six feet long. I was like, huh, that's suspiciously it's six feet 
wide by like three feet width and six feet long, and you're digging down really deep. <laughs> what is that going to be for? For flowers, honey. Um, so thankfully, that is still a flower bed holder, and uh, yeah, things have uh, have worked themselves out, and and uh, things are looking up. Oh, I could tell it'd be interesting to to be, be around you all the time. But of course, like anything, you know, it's um, it tests those relationships. But it's amazing when you think back to hundred, like a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, when the pioneers when they all be in one room cabin. And, yeah. and and lived together basically for 20 30 years the whole time and uh everybody got to experience that in a in a different way and uh it really they really test those relationships and i think i, I think for the most part i think i'm a, i'm a i'm a pollyanna type where once you get through these things you go through stronger and more firm in, in belief and um when you have tragedies and things like that that happen yeah i couldn't agree with you more i mean we we started out thinking that we were going to go off the grid and grow our own crops and that it was the end of civilization. And, and then I found out what, like all of my broccoli died, my cucumbers were only this big and I can't grow my own crops. And so we all need to be reliant on each other. And I think it's kind of given us this sense that um, we are all dependent on each other, you know, and that humanity is so connected and, you know, geez, I mean, a virus is a perfect metaphor for how connected we all are. And, uh, and how important it is to get it vaccinated and, you know, how important it is to, um, to, to work together toward common goals, you know, and really kind of like learn that. I hope that we take the positive message from that and not uh, get too divided. But, um, but I think there is, is a real like switch that's happened with a lot of people I know where your friends became closer, the people you love are closer than ever. And you kind of realize that, um, you know, uh, life is short and life is transient. And you kind of make the most of it and embrace your loved ones, but also embrace your fears and go after what you want in life. And I see a lot of that right now. I see a lot of people just like quitting jobs that they didn't want and, and striking out for a lifestyle and a career and a path that, that makes them, that, you know, blows their, their skirt up, that makes them excited again. And I think that's what life is all about. It's kind of retaught us that lesson. Yeah, I think that childhood um, curiosity that all of us have, sometimes we bury it down deep. Some people keep it always to the forefront and, you know, just learning something new and different. And you might not be good at it, but at least you tried, you learned from that, and then you move on. But if you don't try things, if all you think is, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this, and it, you, you can always come up with barriers. But it's always yeah. great when you're able to push through and say, well, let me see, let me go for this experience. And I think that's what life is all about, experiences that you can have that are unique to you and the people around you that you can enjoy. Yeah, 100%. I actually, I've come to the conclusion uh, now that I, I don't think being good at something matters at all. I think that that's for other people to decide and it's not for you to decide and what you have to decide is what your level of commitment is to something and what your what gets you excited about that thing. And I just don't think there's any value in looking at whether you're good at it or not. Somebody, you know, there's uh, people didn't think Bob Dylan was a very good musician, but uh, he turned out he changed the world's music. And so I, you know, it's been a lesson I've had to learn kind of over and over, but, um, but I really think evaluation of our own worth it, it, it gets in the way all the time. And the only thing that matters is kind of pursuing 
something that gets you excited and something you can wake up every day and keep doing. And, um, and, and that's it. You can't, you're not going to be good. There's so many people in this world that are going to be better than you at whatever you're doing, unless you're LeBron James, but uh, it took him a while to get there too. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just keep doing it. And even, and even then you're only going to be at that level for so long for such a period before the yeah. next person comes up there and takes that spot. And that's just the way life is. And uh, I think that's where it's, it's interesting with you as a filmmaker is you're able to put a lot of these things to film. And that way, in a sense, I mean, if people say it'll last forever, how long is forever? I don't know because you, you go back in time, people thought their things would last forever back in ancient Rome and stuff like that. And some things <laughs> do hold up, but it's it, at least it'll last and people can see a vision and go with it. But then, as you just said, people interpret things differently. So how you put yeah. it out there one way, how everybody else interprets it could be totally different. And it doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It's just how they view it from their experiences. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, it, you know, again, I think, you know, I'm sure, I know there's some people that really think of their legacy and all that kind of stuff and what they're going to leave behind. For me personally, that's just too intimidating of a thought for me. And, uh, and you know, it's self-destructive because I – um, it, the times where I haven't been able to encourage myself, the times where I haven't really moved forward in life is whenever I'm evaluating myself from the outside and thinking, oh, you know, I'm not, I, I need to do more. I need to be better. I need to, um, I went through this period after making Tucker and Dale where I, I, I wanted, I desperately wanted to make a film that was sort of better in every way than Tucker and Dale. And I turned down a lot of work that would have been work. And I also didn't want to work on scripts that I thought were good, but not great. And, um, and it took me a long time to like get little evil off the ground. This is a movie I wrote and directed. And, and when I finally made it, I was kind of like, Oh, this is a decent movie, but it has its own character and everything. And I was really like, I'm going to make a better movie. I'm going to make a better horror comedy than Tucker and Dale. And you know, it, it, in in my own sort of personal opinion, it's just, it's a really different movie and it's hard to compare and people shouldn't really compare the two, but it's definitely probably not better than it. And I think that it, it kind of made me step back and say like, just stop evaluating. Stop thinking what's better and worse. What are you excited by? What do you want to do? What's going to make you, um, you know, sustain a project for multiple years while you write the script and then try to go get the financing for it. And um, and so it kind of changed my, my attitude around it. And uh, I feel a lot more free. I think into the pandemic kind of aided that. Like, you know, we had all this collectively like a near-death experience. And at least we felt like we did, even if it wasn't that close. And then uh, kind of go, wait a minute. I've been spending too much of my life worrying about bullshit that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, So changing all that has been important. And I think, I think that's one of the key things is realizing what your focus should be. And I think any job you do, I mean, you know, um, whatever field you're in and whatever you're going to be doing, you have to be able to, that love of wanting to do it. Because if you don't want to do it, then it's just, you're just yeah. doing the work and then, you know, you're not as motivated. You're not going to care as much and other things yeah. will start to come barriers where if you have that desire to do it, that mm-hmm. uh, then you're going to be there showing up all the time and you're going to be fully experiencing it and fully into it. Yeah. And you have to remind yourself that that desire is there sometimes because 
there's always that crux of a project where you just go, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know, I have on my wall, finish what you start. Um, sometimes I don't always stick to that, but it's a, it, it, there's always that crux in a project where you just want to tear your hair out and you think I'll never get through this and I'll do anything to not finish this. <laughs> and I think you got to push through that as well and remind yourself you're doing this because of those moments of joy and connection to something that really do mean something. And, uh, and you'll get to the other side of that feeling and there'll be a new feeling after that. So it's just keep, sometimes you got to haul yourself through the mud too. That is true. And, and, and- there's so many projects that I remember having when I was younger and thinking I was going to do this and that, and then other things happen. And one of the reasons we started this podcast was when my children and I decided let's do something. And it took a little while to get it going. I was like, no, no, we're going to do this. We, we, we can pull this off. We, we have the technology. We have some type of talent. Let's go for it. And uh, you know, and, and, and the thing is it, I like it because I get to do a lot of stuff with them when we do the movie reviews and we have other people come in and guest host with us. So it's, it's kind of nice to have different points of view. And then I like to get to meet different people and find out what, what, it, what everybody's bringing to all these dif- different movies and talking to people like yourself is to me is one of those fun things. And I think as long as it's fun, as long as all of us are having um, that, that the enjoyment with it, we're going to keep the show going. And I think that's the key thing is, but yet there are times yeah. when you're editing and doing the other stuff that's not as fun, so to speak. Yeah. It gets to be a grind. Yeah. And it's amazing. I love that you're just, you know, you guys just set out to do this as a family and you were going to start this podcast and then you write people and they say, yes, you know, like, Hey, do you want to do my podcast? And you caught me in a moment where I'm like, sure, why not? Or you've had some great interviews. And I think that there's, a, it's a funny thing. Um, to just sort of professionalize yourself and to just, you probably have this conversation not recorded and we would have a great conversation, but you're like, this is, I have a talent for talking to people. I'm going to make a profession. I'm going to professionalize myself and I'm going to go out there and meet great people and create a, a business. And uh, the world, I love that there's so much opportunity for that now that didn't used to be there. It's amazing. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and, and for those that are wondering, it's just, like people say, oh, how do you how do you get an interview with so and so? It's it's a simple thing as you just said. You ask, and yeah. and, and either they're going to say yes or no, or well down the road, you know, don't, you know, to say I can't do it right now, but we can do it at such and such a time when my schedule opens up. And people coming on the show like yourself, I think we've had a lot of great. I think all of our interviews have been great because pretty much people are coming in because they want to do it. It's not like they're being forced mm-hmm. to do it. Not like you're doing a press tour. And it's like, hey, you got to go talk on this guy's show. And you might not be feeling it that day. You know, you did like six in a row and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it's. Uh... Yeah. And I think it's good to catch people that are when they're not doing a press tour and they're not super busy promoting something because, you know, I'm kind of like in between projects right now and it's been a bit. And I also don't, um, I don't really put myself out there, uh, in this kind of way very often. So it, it, when you wrote to me, I was like, sure, why not? I, uh, I don't do this all the time. And I think it's good for me to do it a bit. Um, but there are people that just, you know, make a living sort of promoting themselves. And uh, that's a different beast. I, I don't know if you get a really sincere conversation out of those people or not. I guess it depends on the person. Um, but, um, but I guess, you know, it, it, for me, uh, to be open and honest about who I am and my, my life and where I come from. And, uh, 
and the fact that some people are interested in me and what I have to offer is, um, it's always been a little bit challenging. Like I'm always kind of like, you know, I make movies that make people laugh, but you know, who cares about me? Like I'll just stay behind the scenes, let my actors go out there and promote things and let that happen. But um, I, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of uh, put myself out there more that way now and say, I know that there's a lot of fans that really do care about and women. You're betrayed by the work out there. So um, I want to make sure that I don't just hide in a cave and not, not kind of go out and put myself out there. Well, I understand that. And I think I've had a lot of independent filmmakers on the show. And I think a lot of people who are interested in getting into filmmaking. My nephew just graduated with his cinematography degree and he's going into documentary style. He's interning for um, public television and they need to know sometimes the story of other people that have gone through it. I think to help them is like, Oh, this is how this person went into doesn't mean it's going to be their path, but they, I think hearing the stories about how other people went through the pros, the cons, whatever helps the young, your group, the new the newbies that are coming up to keep the torch going. Exactly. And it's good to know that the people who made successful films were were really underdogs. And I mean nobody thought Tucker and Dale was going to work as a movie. Um, it, it was almost impossible making it, getting the financing for it. Nobody in town wanted to make it, right? And I mean we even before I went and directed it we sent it around town to see if anybody wanted to direct the movie or just make the script and we, you know, get paid for it. Like nobody took us up on it. Right. And then I was like, well, this, this is ridiculous. I'm going to direct it. It's kind of like you just said, you have a podcast. I was like, I'm just going to go direct this movie. And uh, I said to my writing partner at the time, he's like, do you want to, do you want to produce it? And he's like, sure. Not that he even knew exactly what that meant, but we ended up going around town trying to find the money for it. And, um, you know, I had people that liked the script. I had agencies that would read the script and say, this thing's hilarious. Like, we got to get some of our people in it. But I could not get financiers to bite and put money into it. Um, and so we kept trying to attach different actors and uh, financiers kept saying, well, who's this guy and what's this worth? And finally, we got this guy, Deepak Nayer, um, who was an indie filmmaker, filmmaker and had done uh, an old Sundance movie that was very successful. I think it was the most successful movie ever out of Sundance at that time called Bend It Like Beckham. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was a soccer, indie soccer film and um, very cool movie, kind of ahead of its time in a way. Um, and uh, anyway, he helped us find the financing. He's like, I believe in this little film. And we went up, we came up here to Canada. We shot it in Calgary and for no money. And then we had like these glimpses of success. Like we went to Sundance and like tore the house down. Like we would have these, these showings where the first uh, screening ever, there'd be 1200 people in the audience just laughing so hard. And then all of the distributors would be like, yeah, funny, but you know, won't ever play in a theater. It won't work. Won't work. And uh, we kept getting turned down. We would go, we went to South by Southwest and like one, the audience award and the distributors would be like, no, no, it won't work. At the time I even wrote a, um, a little like short, a, a, like a horror movie called uh, uh, suits versus hoodies. And I didn't know how, um, 
how ahead of the time it would be. Like I, in some ways, I'm like, I don't know if I had actually ever made that, if it would be like how it would be seen today. But it was just like, I felt like these suits were just out to stop me at all costs. Like, why do you guys not see how, how successful and how much people could love this movie? And at the end of the day, we ended up doing like, we finally got like a day and date release, um, like a year and a half later. It had already been torrented and like slipped into the torrent and became this like massive hit through the torrent. So you're like, if a film could strike a chord with people through torrents, do you think it would, could do well anywhere? Um, and we had a small release and like it kind of went nowhere. And then a couple of years later, it ended up on Netflix. And it was like two and a half, three years later, I started people, people would come up to me like, hey, you're that guy that directed Tucker and Dale. And that like happened once or twice. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, where do they see it? And then it was like, slowly it started to dawn on me that people were really watching the film and loving it. But it was like so rare for a film. It was like three or four years later. And it really started to hit. And that's when I was like showing people Netflix and other places. Like, I got these other scripts. Like, how about we make some of these? And started making a living doing rewrites and doing um, really like assignment work to support the family. Um, and then wrote this script called Little Evil on the side and we were able to make Netflix um, because they saw, even though the distributors didn't see, Netflix could see how many people viewed this thing. Um, so they don't release that information, which kind of sucks, but uh, it, internally they know what it was. So they're like, how about we uh, give you another movie? So, so Netflix has been a good venue for me ultimately for that. And that's, I think it's the one interesting thing with these streaming services that have been popping up is everybody needs creative content. And in some cases they're really helping the independent filmmakers because they're giving them the money to actually get these projects off the ground and running mm -hmm. because they're, they're more willing to take the chances because they're not trying to, they're, they're more interested in getting the content there and, and getting it out there. And they know their audiences are so diverse, especially net a, a thing like Netflix or Amazon prime or any of those. Yeah. They got so many different people. So, they don't have to worry about they're trying to tailor to one, but like Hallmark, like they're trying to tailor to one particular demographic. They're, they're trying to hit all the demographics in order to do that. They need a lot of content, which is where you're, you're lucky that you got that Tucker and Dale got you in. Yeah, I know. Now I see it that way. For a few years, I was like, why is nobody seeing the, like appreciating this movie for what it is? And now that they do appreciate it for what it was, it took a long time to get there. It's kind of, um, it's kind of been a flip like, Oh, okay. I, I have had all these opportunities and I have to see how, how blessed I've been. Cause for a few years I was like, not feeling blessed. I was feeling like I was kind of like getting uh, uh, snubbed and, uh, but that doesn't create a very good um, uh, mentality either. So, uh, you know, and then, and then now you realize like, Oh, that film really did a lot to open these doors for me and I'm talking to Netflix about more movies and various things. And uh, you, the business is changing a lot right now. Um, even that dynamic you're talking about right now where Netflix wanted to do would just throw money at these little projects, like, you know, one and two and $3 million even they almost Netflix really took the place of independent film and just kind of absorbed it. Uh, along with Amazon Prime and other things, but really Netflix is just this behemoth. And even at Sundance, you know, a lot of the films and running at Sundance would be Netflix films, um, which I, I I have 
bit of a problem with because I don't think those films should all be have distributors. I think the idea of an independent film is that you make the film without the distributor and then you go and you're trying to like get the energy and the buzz and then get the distributor to buy it. Um, but that changed a lot now. But now Netflix is going through a new evolution where they're now competing with Disney and they're competing with all the, the big heavy hitters that have their own streaming services. And they want to have more like bigger budget knockouts and they want to do a little less of the low uh, kind of lo-fi indie films and a little more like big, big budget blockbuster. So bit of a change, you know? Exactly. And um, I've talked to other filmmakers, independent filmmakers like yourself, and I know it's, it's, it's a song and a dance. You get the movie done and then after one getting the financing to do the movie, that's, that's like the biggest song and dance routine and then getting the distribution and all of you, I'm sure I, I think I've, I've talked to you agree. You want people to see it in the movie theater, the way you intended it to be seen, you know, with, you know, like 150, 250 people, depending on the size of the theater, people eating their popcorn and you in the back, just watching their reaction saying, are they going to react where I want them to react or I expect them to react or sometimes they react to different spots. And you're like, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know they were going to cue in on that. You're so right. I mean, you know, again, I feel blessed that I had that experience with Tucker and Dale through the film festival circuit. I got to see it in these theaters and Sundance and South by Southwest. And then I got to travel the world with it um, as I was invited to film festivals all over the world. And uh, we went down to uh, a film festival in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and we went, I was at a film festival in um, Czech Republic. And I'll always remember this. It was this huge uh, dome that was set up and it was an outdoor venue. They had kind of created their own theater there, but there were maybe five, 600 people in this dome and completely packed house. And this was, I was now kind of over the stage of being super nervous every time it was viewed. It was like, it was being reacted to well. I had been to dozens and dozens of screenings that had all gone well. The movie was finished and still going to these festivals. And um, so I introduced the movie, totally different kind of audience. Um, and it was translated at the bottom, but I could hear the English. And then the subtitles were underneath. And I walked outside and I was kind of like had a beer and I was like looking at the night and I was hearing the reactions of the crowd. And I'd hear the dialogue, for instance, and then for a second I heard the dialogue and there wasn't much of a laughter. I was like, oh, this is so strange. And then boom, a few seconds later, the laughter hit. And I was like, wow, this is a different thing. And then I heard the dialogue again that should get the laugh. A few seconds later, boom, the laughter hit. And then I realized that it was all working the same, but it was, they were reading the transcript, you know, they were reading the, the dialogue and it just took longer across to the different culture and the audience. Um, but realizing that comedy can transcend cultures and really bring people together. And um, it's just so much fun to see my comedy just, just light up an audience and make people feel closer together and, and, and uh, bring such joy to people. It was so much fun. Well, it, it was, it was a joy to see, but before we get in more into Tucker and Dale versus evil, one oh, okay, thing I want yeah. to ask you about is what are some films that influenced you to become a filmmaker when you were like, growing up or in, in your twenties, whatever, what were, you know, like what was a film or two that. You know, it's kind of a, I, I was a really adventuresome kid, right? I like to do, anything that was adventurous, I, whether it was climbing a mountain 
or going snow skiing off a crazy mountain, hiking the mountain and snow skiing off it. Once I, I got into college, I was really into rock climbing and kayaking on rivers that had never been kayaked before. I've always been like that. And so, um, I, and so I had this diversity, like, but I, the thing that really sucked me into movies, like really pulled me in are not really the movies I necessarily do or get to make, but they were sort of these epic, like David Lean type films, you know? I mean, David Lean films, I should say. This Lawrence of Arabia stuff where you're just, you just look at the the power of film and the beauty of the scenery and the just expert acting and just I, that's the kind of stuff that made me go, I want to be a filmmaker. Um, the stuff that I've ended up doing is the other side of me a bit where um, I also really got a kick out of it, it's sort of weird. I watched you know, all the horror films. I watched Nightmare on Elm Street, and and I loved like Evil Dead series. And I watched that through college and everything. Um, but I also wa- loved uh, like Bill Murray comedies. Uh, and so when Tucker and Dale is this real weird merging of those two worlds. Um, but Harold Ramis was a big a big effect on me because every time I was sick ever, I would either as a kid I would either watch um, I would watch Ghostbusters or I'd watch, um, um, you know, any one of his films really was fantastic. Um, what's the one they, they go in the army, you know, um, oh, Bill stripes. Murray and stripes. So I'd watch stripes all the time when I was sick. It was totally inappropriate. I was like, I think six or seven years old, you know, and there's <laughs> tons of nudity and everything that like now we see that as R rated. Um, it's funny that violence is so cool now and yet, uh, boobs are make it R-rated, but um, so I, I really enjoyed those kind of films. But I think that still I, I have this dream of making something that's a little bit epic in that sort of David David Lean storytelling way. Um, but even in my films, there's kind of a mix. I, I try to I try to have enough like cinema in it that you get pulled into the story in a visual way. Well, I mean, I think you have to like with, with cinema. It's that, that visual storytelling is the thing that sometimes you'll see certain filmmakers not utilize as well as they could. And you see other filmmakers that use it in such ways that just blows your mind. Um, we did a review of Napoleon, the 1927 silent movie by um, wow. Ab- Abel Gantz. And it's five and a half hours long. I think Netflix is coming out with a seven hour version of it soon. Cause originally I think it was nine hours and um, you know, restoration and stuff, but it was just, you're just wow. blown away with, the technique that there was used in 1927 and, and then yeah. you see certain certain minds like david lean orson wells i mean certain people just hit the ground and you're just just amazed at what you're able to see on the screen with totally. the creativity we were just watching i was just watching uh the hitchcock's the birds recently again you know because I, I i'm adapting something you know that is in that um, creature, wild, uh, wild animal genre and, um, rabbit animal, I should say. And it just is astounding what they were able to pull out. I think it was 1960, 1959. They were able to pull off these effects that were just, um, they were almost viable by today's standards. And, you know, I'm, I'm going through how those were done back then, you know, and you're literally, you're literally compositing it in on film. You're burning it on top of a frame of film 
and the specificity and just the um, the technical expertise to do that is is unbelievable. Um, so I mean, film's always been this great mixture of art and science, right? And I I love I love when they come together. This you know um, I, I love Cameron. I mean, you look at what Cameron kind of films he's done, and I keep trying to tell my kids like one of my sons is is six, turning seven. The other one is, is 15. And so they're not always able to watch the same movies, right? And I can go, we got to watch Avatar. The new Avatars will be coming out soon. We have to watch Avatar. And, uh, and my, 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 uh, my older son and, you know, everybody's like, it's, it's too, too violent for our six-year-old. And I'm like, come on. He's used to seeing that stuff. I mean, it's such a great story. You have to watch it. It's, it's just great filmmaking. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love that. I love when somebody comes together with, with just amazing technique, like cinematic technique. I mean, um, and what you were talking about with the silent films, I mean, that's amazing. Eight, eight hour silent film might might stretch the uh, abilities of my attention span a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely made for a different a different time, a different audience, and um, and of course, if when Netflix does the restoration, the beauty of it is they can it 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 had some. Um, parts like uh, like act one act two i think it had four acts if i remember right so you so you could easily like watch act one take a break the next day pick up act two if you wanted that kind of stuff i was crazy enough to do it all in one sitting with just taking breaks Whoa. to stretch but that, that's what that's what everybody tells me you're nuts i'm like hey eh, you know i just felt like i was into it I, I was so into the film i just wanted to keep going it's, it's the beginning of binge, binge watching 1929 binge watching right yes <laughs> yeah that, that's that's amazing. Um, did you ever see the silent film Metropolis? Yes, oh, many times. That is a masterpiece. I would watch your review on Metropolis because uh, I, I think they've. I've looked it up several times. They've talked about doing a remake of that movie. It should be done now because it it is really poignant to today. But yeah, if you've if you've seen that, just what they were able to do in a silent film. In some ways, I think silent film is really important to study. Like um, when I was in film school, we, our first films we made were like forced to be silent films. And none of the uh, students really understood. They were like, come on, I want to have dialogue. Like I want to be like Judd Apatow and have fun dialogue. And uh, just being forced to tell a story visually is, is so important. Uh, sometimes we get away from that and and like really good I mean, the most intriguing films are always stories that are just told visually and, and have less dialogue than you need, or than you would typically have in our, you know, in our world conversation. And, and I think that's where I was meaning when I was talking about, like, with cinema, you should be able to see the experience and have the di the dialogue should be to augment what you're seeing. But if, but if you have to explain everything, then if you have to use dialogue to explain what people are supposed to be seeing, then I think in some cases the filmmaker – Unless you're trying to describe the undescribable, you know, um, yeah. um, I think the filmmaker failed to get that across visually because so it should be yeah. the marriage of the both. And I think for me, when, when both are hitting at all cylinders, that's when you really got a, a good movie and, ho and hopefully that everything's working script wise, but I mean, but it filmed well, not everything, not everything filmed correctly and done correctly is going to be something that's going to appeal to everybody's taste. But it's yeah, just, at least yeah. you know they did a good they did the job that they were supposed to do and get that across using that mo that medium. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it's just a good note to always come back to because sometimes 
it's it's fun to write a scene, you know, and it's fun to writing uh, good dialogue. It's always, I mean, it's just it, it is one of the parts I really enjoy about script writing. But um, digging into the visual details in a script is a little more tedious sometimes. But when you're shooting it, then you're like, oh, okay, it, you can make sense of it all. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. It's the combination of those two things is really what what good storytelling is all about. But the interesting thing is, I was telling you this before we started recording, when I when you agreed to the interview, because I'd seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil and Little Evil, uh, I was look, look, looking at your background, and I did not notice at the time, but you have you have an inter- interesting parentage, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, I do. I have uh, my father's this crazy um, '60s kind of uh iconoclast who who did things his own way and like i grew up partly in the oregon woods and and he you know worked in sawmills and did construction work and i grew up partly there and then partly in los angeles where my my mom was a movie star and uh was an actress and i and i grew up thinking i wanted to be that lumberman that like hard working dude in oregon uh, and did a lot of that um and so I really grew up with this dichotomy in my life between real, you know, sort of working class American and, 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 a, and a little bit of elitism. Um, I'm not, I mean, I guess I am ashamed a bit to say, but it is, it is the truth, a bit of elitism and entitlement and all that stuff. And I kind of lean toward sort of the more, uh, rougher outdoorsy lifestyle and and i never thought i'd go into show business for that reason and like you said before i ended up um going in and becoming an outward bound instructor and then i was guiding kids on mountains and then i guided mountaineering trips in south america on the highest mountain in the western hemisphere on aconcagua so i was guiding on that and we were guiding in, in denali and i thought my my life was like going to be mountain guiding and and then I had, I was accepted. I started shooting a lot of documentary stuff, both in the outdoors and then both just tracking people. And, um, and I had a year where I had uh, an invite from a friend to climb Everest. And it was the guy I was doing climbing with. And I'd have to raise like $60,000 for the Sherpas and all that stuff that Everest includes. And I, and I was kind of like, okay, I could go climb Everest and spend 60000 And in that same year, I also had applied and gotten into USC film school. And, um, and I was working on this documentary that I was trying to finish at the time. And I just made this decision that I was going to go to film school and finish this documentary. And, and climbing Everest kind of was like something I was going to put off for a while. I'm still yet to climb Everest. <laughs> Not sure I want to anymore. Um, it seems like a feather in the cap that would be fun to have, but it would be almost solely for ego because it's such a, um, kind of a grotesque climb now it's just such a it's a mob um but anyway it, it is it is a, it's a it's a scene but anyway so i grew up in this really big dichotomy and i ended up like almost on the flip of a switch just saying um i'm gonna do some acting and i'm gonna live a life that's more on the creative side and uh and yeah and i've been able to apply some of that dichotomy to my work i think um and um and in some ways a, a lot of the stuff i write has to do with this kind of clash of cultures that I was in the middle of. Um, and so I, I don't know, it, it, it was a bit of a different way to grow up. Uh, 
and I, I reflect on it. Like I didn't embrace it. It's funny, you know, I grew up with friends like in the film industry and I just, I didn't embrace it. Like some of them did. I kind of was like, kept my relationship to my mom at arm's length. I definitely never used it to promote myself or anything. That's why you were so surprised because nobody ever, I, I, I you know, um, I'll tell you when, when I started acting, it freaked me out a little because I did this film with Clint Eastwood. Um, Space Cowboys. And very small. Space Cowboys. And it was a very small part. But I had done like three movies and there were small parts. I was kind of dabbling in it. And, I, and it made me nervous because I, I, one thing I know from my mom's experience, my mom is Sally Field, by the way. I, I don't think she said that. But from my mom's experience was that once you have fame, you can't reel it back in. You can't unfame yourself. <laughs> and I, I saw her experience and I thought, I never want to be famous because um, I didn't like the way people treated her. I didn't like the way people sucked up to her. And I didn't like how it sucked the oxygen out of the room. I didn't like how it changed people. I mean, you go to a room, too, still to this day, people just can't act like themselves. They can't act normal around some people. Um, and it can bring out good things in people, but it brings out bad things in a lot of people. It brings out a sycophantish quality. It brings out um, a part that makes pe people think that person's better than you. Anyway, I, I had decided that I didn't want that in my life. And then I was, found myself dabbling in acting. And I did this really crappy horror film at first, which was fitting for me, called Carrie 2, where my head got chopped off. And, and then I was in this other couple other indie things. And then um, I was in this Clint Eastwood movie. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this could be kind of a big deal. Do I really want to do this? And right as that was going on, I did like a cover of, um, not the cover, but I was in, um, you know, it, it wasn't People, it was In Style magazine. And I had some like shoot, photo shoot, and it said, you know, Eli Craig, comma, son of Sally Field. And, and I realized that that was going to be my, um, the way I was known forever. Uh, and I thought, I, I like my anonymity. Like I, and I, I kind of decided that I didn't want to be an actor. And um, it, it, it was pretty like, I kind of stepped away from it and I started shooting a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I wrote a script that same year and I sold the script and I was like, I can write and really enjoy writing and uh, started working toward writing and directing. And that was a long process. I thought it may be a little easier than, than it ended up being. Um, but I will say, oddly for somebody who grew up with a famous parent, I'm still incredibly thankful to not be famous. And I don't think the rest of the world would necessarily understands or agrees with that because in this culture, everybody seems to want to be famous. Everybody wants to have an Instagram account that has like huge followers. And, and, but uh, I really appreciate that I can blend into different groups of people and blend into different cultures and get to know people in a way that is, um, is not, it's not predetermined. Um, and you're not like, pinpointed and it's very hard for people to unlearn something about you that, that affects their version of who you are. Um, yeah. So it, it is kind of weird. Cause I, I remember when um, Instagram was first becoming big and, and Facebook and I, I said, you know, 
this is going to reach a point where people realize that they don't want this. Like people don't all want to be famous. And I was totally wrong. Like it totally went the other way. It seems like everybody wants to put their story out there and get uh, attention for it. But um, maybe it'll swing the other way at some point too. I'm, I'm amazed what people will share on Facebook. And it's just, I'm looking at it thinking, I like to share like humorous little things, you know, like whatever, but I'm not going to share, Oh, I'm, I'm going to the hospital today or here's my meal. Yeah. To me, it's kind of like, you know, when I, <laughs> when I call my friend up, like I'll go back to the old days whenever we had to communicate by telephone or letter, am I going to write a letter telling somebody I ate this today for lunch? No. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And there's somebody going to be interested. It turns out there's some people that are legitimately interested in what somebody ate today. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a bit of a, it pulls you in, you know, clickbait works for all of us. Like that, uh, left swipe thing on the, on the iPhone, I had to get rid of it because I started left swiping and then you click the story and, um, find out something about somebody that's new and, and, and then it starts feeding you that same kind of stuff over and over. And then you're like, I don't want to be spending my time finding out what, what Chris Pratt is doing or what you know, Chris Hemsworth is wearing or whatever, you know, how his day at the beach was like, uh, but, um, a lot of people do. So I, I just, um, it's a little bit baffling to me. I think we all got to, I just find our own passion and not be so addicted to what other people are doing. Now, before we move on to the next thing, two things I want to bring up that you talked about already. One, you and I have a common background in a bit. When you talk about out, outward bound leader instructor, when I was in college, mm-hmm. I used to lead hiking trips, camping trips out, you know, and take people to, I'm of course on the East Coast, so it would be Shenandoah National Park and all those kind of fun things. And I remember taking mountaineering class in college and um, going to Mount Washington, you know, with a, back when there, there was a ton of snow. And we I thought we got up there, I thought these were like bushes, but the tops of trees because the snow was so deep. And we, we, yeah. you know, and all that. And those are the things my eldest brother, who's eight years older, when I was growing up, he would take me rock climbing. He would take me yeah. kayaking. Canoe, and he would take me on these college trips when I was like, I would be 11 years old. I'm going with him with all these college students and we're going out there. And some of them are scared of all, all get out because they're in the outdoors. And I'm just like, you know, yeah. I'm with my brother, you know, you know, when you're 11 and you're with your 19 year old brother, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's funny. I used to, when I was teaching outward bound classes, people were so terrified of the outdoors and we'd be sleeping, you know, hike 15 miles into the woods and be like, what if some freak is out here and they're going to kill us? And I'd say, if you run into somebody out here, they're more likely to share a meal with you than anything. And where you should be nervous, like is when you go to college, you should be nervous at the frat house, you know, be nervous when you're hanging out on, on fraternity row, not, not here in the woods where you're totally safe. In some ways that, that, was the impetus for writing Tucker and Dale, where you had these frat kids be the evil ones and the hillbillies were the nice guys, you know? Because, <laughs> like, in my experience, rural areas, no matter what your, you know, stupid, whatever, whatever your politics are or anything, if your truck breaks down and you're in the middle of nowhere in Alabama, somebody pulls over, 99.999% chance they're pulling over to help you fix your tire. And, uh, and they're the nice, you know, Rural people are generally people that are gonna gonna help you out, and yet through um, media and through film, like you kind of ended up with this this impression that they're 
they're going to kill you and <laughs> murder your kids or something, you know? So, oh, I know. I know. And it's, 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 I find it kind of funny and um, how people have that outlook, you know, with, with just from perspective of the news or their films or whatever, uh, the, the only thing that could kill your idea about being a person is if they ever sold the movie Grizzly, then it's like, Oh, it's out there. You know, so I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. But space Cowboys, what was it like with Clint Eastwood? I mean, there's not many people I can talk to that were ever directed by Clint Eastwood or, I mean, I know you said it was a small role, but still he was, what, what, what is he like? Yeah. That was a really interesting experience. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when I showed up there, like the first day I was, it was so strange because I was cast as young Tommy Lee Jones, which was uh, not like, I would never have predicted that. You get an audition, you know, you go out, you, you do do it, and then they call it, it's kind of their decision. But I would have been like, really me for Tommy Lee Jones? Um, and, you know, I, I had this voice I was doing act at the time where I was like, I don't know, you know, that Tommy Lee Jones, like, I can't even do it now, but it was very focused. And um, and I show up on the day, and we had we had uh, I'd gotten picked up and driven all the way out to the uh, Mojave Desert, and I wasn't really sure what scene. We're like, okay, we're doing this scene where you jumped out of the plane. It was the very first shoot, and I, I get in, in wardrobe and everything, and I'm in this like this high altitude flight suit. And uh, get into the wardrobe, and then I'm, I'm out on this set, which is in, on the Mojave Desert, on that like dry lake bed. And cameras are set up, and they're they're running out of time because the wind is starting to pick up. So I like go over. Clint comes over to me, and he says, "Hey, how are you? You know, it's, it's great, just great to see you. Let's get you rigged up." And I'm like, "Hey, Clint, uh, thanks for the job. You know, this is great, exciting." And uh, as I'm talking to him, they're clipping me into this this uh, this crane. And I'm and this wire starts to pull me up, and I'm like, "Great talking to you, Clint." And I'm pulled up in the air, and then the stuntman runs over, and he's like, y "You said from like the audition tapes you were an athlete and a stuntman." And I was like, "Uh, yeah, sure." And he's like, "So remember to roll, like land and roll." And I'm like being pulled up like eight feet, ten feet, twelve feet. I'm like, well, "How high are we going?" And um, and this is all happening so fast because, and I realize as it's going on, the wind is picking up. And I'm landing with this parachute above me. So, so, uh, so I'm like, okay, we're rolling with it. And they say rolling, beep, this, this beep happens. And, uh, oh, the, the, uh, the stuntman was like, remember once you roll to pull this clip to release the parachute. Okay. But I had lines to do and everything. So I'm running through it all in my head. And then they pull me up. I hear this beep. I get dropped. I do my roll and I stand up and I pull off my helmet. I'm like, well, I'm an actor. I got to like take off my helmet. And I start saying my lines and I look over at the camera and behind the camera, everybody is just pointing at me. And just at that second, I realized I forget to pull this clip that releases the parachute. And I feel this gust of wind and I get yanked backwards. And all of a sudden I'm ripping across the Mojave Desert backwards by this parachute that's caught wind and just sliding. And I'm trying to pull this tab on this old, like, 1950s parachute or what is it, 1960s, and I'm pulling, pulling, and finally I release it, and I'm laying in this heap in the dust, and, like, the stuntman and a bunch of people run over, like, are you okay, are you okay? And I'm okay. And then uh, I get back over to Clint, and he's like, looks at me, and he's like, okay, that was interesting. Don't fuck up again. You get two takes. 
<laughs> Next thing I'm no, I hoist it up. I release that thing in time, and I and I do the scene, and that was my introduction to him. Was like, don't fuck up again. You get two takes, <laughs> and that was the most he ever did. The second time I did a take with him, and by the way, he doesn't he doesn't even say action. It's just so Clint. Most people, it's like and action when you do your scene with Clint. You just hear this kind of slight go ahead. And then you're waiting for like the make my day part, but he doesn't say that. He just says, go ahead. And then you walk out and do the scene. And this other scene I had, I walk out after go ahead. And not like me and the other actor, we were looking at each other when we heard go ahead. And we're like, is that, is that it? Does that mean like action? That must mean that we walk out into the scene, do it. And then he says, okay, moving on. And we did one take. One take. I did two takes. I did one take. And then like the other stuff I did was like all one take. And um, he was incredibly efficient. I don't know how he puts together a whole movie that way. Um, but it did teach me on the directing side. Like if you like something as a director, you don't need to be like, let's get it. Let's get another one. Let's get another one. Um, you can shoot a lot more if you just move after you get the good take. So I really, it, it taught me something working with him. Um, Plus, he only works like 12-hour days, and he gets this big, fancy, hour-long lunch, and they never go overtime, and it's like a casual work day. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. He was, uh, he's an icon, man. It was pretty cool meeting him. And it's not many people that get, that get, that get um, told fuck by Clint Eastwood at him. So, I mean, you know, that's going to be like a badge, of, like one of those little badges of honor, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it was. And then I got um, the other badge of honor now. It felt a little hurtful at the time was that Tommy Lee Jones taped over my voice. And it was like the, the all of the young people, Clint Eastwood, um, Tommy Lee Jones, it was like a, a whole group of the young people. They were all dubbed over by their older people, which was super weird to see somebody else's voice come out of my mouth. And you're like, oh, okay. I guess he does sound more like Tommy Lee Jones, but not a young Tommy Lee Jones. He sounds like 65, 70 year old Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones talking, you know. Um, and that was a bit of a learning experience, too, about acting, you know, that you have very little control. And even when something like that happens, you don't even really, unless you're a big named actor, which that wouldn't happen to, you don't even really get a heads up. You just, that's what happened. Or you get cut out of a movie, and that's the way it goes. Um, and, and, you know, the choices in the end, what takes they use and is very much not yours. And so there's a certain amount of just letting go of control uh, that I, I, I like not letting go of, personally. I like being the one deciding which take goes in and how it's going to work and everything in a movie. So, And that's why yeah. on our, our show, we almost never, ever criticize the actors, like when we were talking about a movie, because... We don't know if certain scenes were cut that would have made more content, more sense of what they're saying now. We don't know what how the editing was. How, you know, mm. There's so many factors. It's it's like you can't blame them because they don't know what the end product's going to be or what they're what exactly is going on. Uh, so I, I we almost never ever blame an actor, you know, for yeah. for the work. And then and even then, if it's an independent project, sometimes we rarely blame the director sometimes because. As you said, sometimes with the budget, you have very little time to do it. And if it's a new director, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, very difficult thing to do to budget yeah. that time effectively and efficiently when you only have uh, two weeks or whatever to film the film. I mean, it's not like this Hollywood where you have like three months, six months, whatever uh, type of, you know, type of budget. Yeah. You, you have a very narrow window period to 
do it. Some 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 filmmakers that they only had a week to do their films. Yeah, totally. And and directing is one of the weird jobs where there's really no um, directing is the intro level of a director. You know, there's there's not really a place to work yourself up from. You, you your intro level is directing, and then um, you kind of learn through mistakes and there's not, especially within the film industry now that they don't give a lot of room for mistakes. Like if you, if you make a bad film and it's your first film, you're going to really struggle to make another film. Um, unless you have really deep pockets and there is, you know, you have some really kind relatives that want to keep helping you out. Um, so, I mean, if, if anybody were listening that was wanted to make films, the place to do that is in short films, you know, and really experiment with short films and try different things. And, and of course in film school or, or just doing YouTube videos and everything, you can learn a lot. Um, and then when you get to do a feature film, it's it's, it's business time. You know, you gotta you gotta put it all on the line and make the best film you can because because uh, the industry's harsh that way. If you if you don't make if a couple films don't really hit the target, then uh, there's not a lot of people knocking on your door anymore. No, I, I agree. And you gotta you gotta have that chance to do it and improve yourself and. One of the things I've said this in many interviews, I like to go to film festivals. We have an Annapolis Film Festival. So it's I live north of Baltimore, to give you an idea, Maryland. Most people know where Baltimore is. Uh, so it's like 45 minutes from my house. And um, for the last several years, you go there and you get to see all these different shorts, documentary um, shorts, narrative shorts, feature-length documentaries, feature-length narratives. And it's amazing when you, see the, you go to see the shorts. Some of them are five minutes long. Some of them are 20 some odd minutes long and so many different topics. And I think one of the things that's nice to go to a film festival is just go sit in there. You're watching six shorts in that, that particular period. And, and you, you get exposed to so many different things from other countries and other stuff that it's just amazing. You get to see that work. Some of it you're going to like, some of it you're not going to like, some of you're going to be ambivalent about, yeah. but it's just, yeah. it's, it's still, they got it done and got it out there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm really, I've reached a point in my life where I'm, I'm impressed with anybody who gets the work done, right? Just to get it done and get it out there. Like you say, is, is that is 90% of it. And, um, and you know, um, and then I get into critiquing everything because I'm also a, a director and want to improve my own work. So critiquing, I also mean in a good way, it doesn't necessarily, critiquing doesn't always mean a it's negative. A lot of times it's like trying to analyze why somebody did something a certain way. And, and um, you can learn a lot from just breaking down a story and seeing, you know, boy, I mean, there's just so much talent out there. Right. And so if you see yourself as being a part of this mix of, of wonderful talent and additive in the ways that you can be, it's, it's a great business. If you're trying to like dominate the business or, or be a, be a kingmaker or that kind of thing. That's, that's a different road. And I just, I do feel blessed to be able to work and, um, you know, write, I've been writing a lot and, and I probably make about, well, I've probably written about in total about 20 scripts and I've made two movies. So right now I have about a 10% success ratio. Um, and, uh, which is probably about common. That's probably the, the right thing to shoot for. Um, I hope to make more of these scripts as time goes on, but we'll see. Um, but to get, be able to get paid to write, just, just that alone is uh, is a blessing. Now, you brought up shorts. One of your shorts, I, do, I, was, I was able to see, 
the I think it's what the Tao of Pong. Yeah. Which I thought yeah. was interesting. It's it's like Karate Kid meets Ping Pong in a twenty yeah. minute version, and it it's um I, I enjoyed it. It was kind of it was kind of interesting. I could see the nexus of your humor coming from that yeah. as it went into the other two films. And it's like, it's, I always like to see you know, filmmakers when they were younger and, and see how they changed or grew <laughs> from that. And uh, so what, did, what was it like doing that movie? Um, that, so that was my film school thesis film actually. Um, and it was, it was, it was fun. You know, what happened was when I went to film school uh, at first, I wanted to do more articulate, like really meaningful work. And I was surrounded with people that all wanted to do really deeply meaningful work. And a lot of it felt really, um, really forced to me. And, uh, oh God, just another coming of age film or something. And, oh, teenage angst. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I started writing comedy. Like halfway through film school, I just started writing like comedy scripts. And it felt fun. And we're talking about pursuing stuff that just lights a fire with us. I was sort of, um, in a way, being um, satirical toward all these films I saw. And it was also at a time when there were a lot of action, there were a lot of like action sports films coming out. Um, and so I kind of thought, well, ping pong is a funny way to get into that and, and do a twist on it. But also there were a lot, there was a lot of meaning in that for me about Taoism and the idea of ping pong, like, like to me, like the guy who wins always at ping pong is the guy who just reflects everything. The sort of like Taoist, like I take your energy and I just reflect it back to you. And, and no matter how hard you're trying to crush it, that guy just, just sends that ball, that sends the ping pong ball back to your side. And in a way, the film was about, it was about this guy who was so angry and wanted things, wanted to win so bad that he kept losing. And uh, the Taoist master, who's the karate kid kind of guy, tells him, like, he's not ready. And he's not ready to, to learn the way of the Tao. And, um, and then when he does teach him, he takes him on as an apprentice and teaches him. It's all about letting go. And by letting go, he, he's able to play at his highest level. And then he still doesn't win. But then other things happen, like he gets the girl of his dreams. And, and to me, it's funny because my wife was in that, right? Sasha. Uh, Sasha Craig now, uh, Sasha Williams, who's a Power Ranger. Uh, I, I met her in that, doing that film. And we got married. We've been married 16 years. That was probably 17 years ago I did that film. So um, so it worked out well for me. <laughs> uh, really well. But, uh, I got the girl. So I was ready. I was ready for it. And, uh, you know, it's a lot about, like, are you, are you ready when um, – you know, when are you ready to put yourself out there? When are you ready to, to start doing the work you want to do? And, and the point is that you're ready as soon as you say you are. Put yourself on the line, put yourself out there and begin learning uh, what, what you want to, you know, begin learning the craft that is going to allow you to be excellent at what you do. And just by putting yourself out there and trying to do that, you will change and grow as a person, whether you'll end up doing the thing you want to do it like this guy did not win the ping pong tournament but he uh he got the girl of his dreams and and that was paulo costanzo by the way who's a who's another canadian actor who's who's very good and jake Busey. and so i got to work it was like it was like an early thing but i reached out talk about just writing and asking people 
to still do things. I reached out to Jake and I said, Hey, would you play this nemesis ping pong player for free? You know, he said, sure. And, and Paula, would you do this? And, and I began to learn that I could put together a whole show on my own and build the sets and do the whole thing. And, uh, even a little bit of CGI work, which with the ping pong ball. Um, and so that kind of led me to say, I got to write a feature. Now that led to the next thing, the next one thing I want to say, the one line I thought that was great in that movie, which I think you and I've been dancing around talking about off and on was when the, the, the master's telling him like he helps him with an injury, just like karate kid. And he goes, well, you know, well, what if I lose? He goes, it's just a game. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you got to lighten up, dude. You got to lighten up. It's just a game and it makes you freer. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, unfortunately lost her, her father recently. And it was, you know, it's really heavy. But the thing I said to her was, you know, one of the things that death does teach us and one of the existentialism was something I studied in college and, existentialism talks a lot about death and and one of the things is is it death literally takes our lives but figuratively it gives us our lives because it frees us to be fully ourselves it frees us because ultimately none of us have anything to lose because we there there ain't none of us are going to avoid this thing and and her father had lived a very full life and a very rich life and he was um uh, uh, an exciting man, you know, to know. And, and I think that, um, you know, to, to allow us to just to not be afraid to just live your life. Uh, and I guess that, that was what the Dao Pong is. That's what this, this stuff is to just, what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose, dude. You have nothing to lose. Just go for it. And, and I think that, I think people that are not even interested in filmmaking, it applies to everything in life, you know, and, What's yeah. the, if you try, what's the worst that happened? Hey, it didn't work out, but you learn from that. And, and it's, it's that, like I said earlier in, in the show, the experiences, you know, and I think, and I think that's the thing you learn from that experience and you can go to a different one or you could try if you really want to and treat, keep working at it and, 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 and yeah. improving yourself. Yeah. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, Tucker and Dale versus evil. That was your first feature link film. It came out what you talked about earlier, like 2010, but it took forever to get it to um, distributors and things like that. What was the Genesis for the movie? Cause I know you're, you're the co-writer and you're the director of it, but what was the, the Genesis? I think some of that we got from the interview so far, we're talking about your background, outward bound instructing and your, your comedy, your comedic takes and different things. But, what was it like creating that, to me, a horror comedy classic in my mind? It's like one of the ones I always like to put in every few months. That's pretty cool. I'm so glad it, it, it it's reached that level now. It, t- it took a while, and I thought when I was making it, it was going to be a cult classic. I just believed in it so much. Um, it was basically, what if Leatherface was really a good guy? And, <laughs> and it was, he was... Um, you know, misconstrued as being this evil guy, but he's really just trying to save everybody. And then we took that idea um, and, and ran with it and came up with some scenes where the college kids looked like they were, they were uh, dying these horrendous deaths caused by these evil hillbillies. And actually they were doing it to themselves. And 
before even writing the script, there was uh, the idea that somehow they fall into this wood chipper. <laughs> and that way, that, that's that's that. my favorite death in the whole movie is the wood chipper <laughs> death. And, and my daughters too. We both were like that. That is the wood chipper. <laughs> yeah, it really, it, it really works well. It, you know, it works well where it is too. I think if it was the first death, it would be a little jarring, but it, it escalates well. And we had, uh, you know, the, the other death of the guy, <laughs> which which is the Leatherface scene, uh, where Alan Tudyk is sawing with his chainsaw into a log and then hits a bee's nest and then starts running with the bees attacking him and waving the chainsaw in circles. It's a smoking chainsaw and a kid sees a wild man running at him with a smoking chainsaw and it's straight out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, um, and then that kid, of course, runs into a tree and spears himself. That was that was, dying. and that was Ben's favorite death. My my son that watched that was his favorite. So you're, you're, the two you're talking about were like our favorite ones. And, and when we did our review, we saved our favorite deaths for the end of it. We put a thing in somebody was spoiled. We said, "Don't want to give any. If you don't want to have any spoilers, don't listen beyond this." And then we kind of went over all the craziness. Right. Uh, my um, my I. My favorite might be more subtle. I think um, my favorite death is um, when the girl just wants the puff of her cigarette and she's just willing, she's just given up on life. She's sitting in the fire and she's like, I'm just going to take one smoke. She's like, oh, thank God. Whew, I got a cigarette and then the place blows up. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was really fun to have something um, that was, um, that kind of, was built on the genre of horror. It was really built by, you know, those backward cabins movies. Um, and then to take that genre and twist it and add a little bit of dumb and dumber and, um, and put those guys in that scenario. And, and it, it felt like something that, you know, I remember my, my co-writer and I were sitting each other, looking at each other, like this must've been done before, you know, we we're kind of looking for it. Like I haven't been done. It must've been done. And people to this day, they tell me they saw the film and they kind of can't believe that it hadn't been done before. Um, so it was ripe. It was ripe for the picking. And, um, you know, sometimes when these things come out, you, you run into a movie that's coming out at the same exact time because it's like a zeitgeist. And people have, I don't even know if um, creativity is our own, right? It's like a cultural creativity. And sometimes it all happens at the same time. And, um, Anyway, there was. It turns out there was a zeitgeist around this and the cultural creativity with, with Cabin in the Woods coming out around the same time, and in a weird way, Cabin in the Woods sort of uh, stole some of our thunder because it was like the bigger movie that came out, and 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 they were similar but so different, and they're so they work well together. And eventually, I don't know who came up with this, but there's a DVD on Amazon that's like a, a double header that actually it's it's a Blu-ray with. Cabin in the Woods and Tucker Dale versus Evil on it. I was like, okay, cool. I, w- I would watch that if I was a kid. Um, but yeah, I was just trying to make a movie that I would want to see, you know, and I loved those um, Evil Dead movies. And when I was in college, I used to watch Evil Dead 2, like at midnight all the time. So, um, you know, when you, get, when, you, when you come up with a movie, you write a script, you're like, I want to make the movie that I would want to sit in the audience and watch. And, and I kind of did, did get to make that movie. And that's what was so fun. I didn't know enough to know why I was being told no all the time. Like, 
you know, I couldn't get the money and then I, I found the right actors for it. And Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk and people were like, no, they're not big enough actors. We won't give you the money. Finally, we got the money. We did it. And I kind of got to do the movie exactly the way I'd want to. And nowadays I have even less freedom. I get more money to make the movie and more money to write and direct it, but less freedom to do what I want. Um, so it's kind of this weird trade-off. But I, at the time, I just was desperate to make the movie so I could go sit in a theater and watch it. Your casting of Tyler and, and, and Alan was perfect. I mean, it, 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 you couldn't get a better Tucker and Dale. I mean, I can't imagine anybody else playing those parts. I mean, Alan Tudyk, poor Alan Tudyk's character, you know. I mean, he, he suffers yeah. so much as Tucker in this. And it seems like Dale or somehow has this of way of avoiding getting physically hurt and and everything seems to yeah. always happen to Tucker. And it's just, it reminds me a little bit of um, like Abbott and Costello where Tucker is the Costello character that seems to get all the, the stuff and, and Bud, it seems to be Dale where like, Oh, nothing seems to happen to him, but it's, it's yeah. in some ways it's got, but it's, it's uh, but his acting, both their acting was great. I mean, the chemistry that they had together was, I mean, I know it was, their, I think it was their first movie together, but it seemed like they'd been, friends forever yeah that was what was so great i mean like when alan came on he brought a level of like like he's a juilliard trained actor right like he's an actor and and tyler labine comes from doing it all his life and he comes from more like the stand-up comedy he's very very funny um and the two of them together not only did they hit it off as people but they, they really were able to feed on, off each other. And Alan plays everything so real. Everything needs to be justified. Anything in the script that didn't make sense to him, that wasn't justified in his character, like he was, he was hard to direct because he, he wouldn't accept a line if it wasn't true to his character. And there, fortunately, there weren't a lot, but there were things like he really wanted to understand where this guy came from and you know what he ate for breakfast kind of thing. And uh and it was great to work with an actor like that on my first film. And, and he, um, and he just brought it alive. He brought his character, the character alive. And so it was this perfect duo and they played off each other so well. The first scene we shot, I think back to this sometimes, the very first scene, the very first day is them in the back of the pickup truck it was the day. And, uh, they see the girls for the first time and he walks up to her and he says, you girls going camping? And while they're loading up the truck and they're looking over and the very first scene we shot was like outside there and they feel like they've been friends their whole life. And uh, he, he says, there ain't nothing special about them girls. They're just college girls. You know, you should go talk to them. He says, you're, you're, you're a good looking man, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 uh, and you got a lot of heart and that's two things right there, you know? And so, um, yeah, and I was like, "Wow, this is the this is." They knew each other for a total of forty hours at that point. They had, he had flown in. We had one meeting the day before. They didn't really have any rehearsal time, and just threw it in and, and got that scene. And so that that was a testament to how good those guys are. I mean, and you can see that with certain movies where certain actors have that chemistry right off the bat. I mean, and, and it and it. And it enlivens their characters so much when the, they're able to work so well together. And, and obviously since they're the stars of the movie, it really helps that it, their, the relationship was so 
so believable. I mean, it was just like, you could tell these guys have been friends for a long time. Yeah. I'll tell you something that's really interesting to the film business too. It's like, um, Tyler, I saw him in uh, TV. I was searching for a guy that was from Canada because we'd get the tax credits that, that was this character. And I searched high and low, watched all these TV shows and, and I, I watched a lot of Tyler Labine's work and I was like, this is the guy. It's got to be him. Met with him, um, got him. He read the script. He was into it. He had really not played a lead role like this before, especially a really like character role. Like a lot of times he gets um, wisecracking scripts, you know, or you just, you're this kind of smart ass wisecracker. But this was a character that he got to play. So he was so excited. But then we had another actor that was more, that was like, from inside the agency that was sort of helping me put this together, but not really. Um, and he was into it, but he was just starting to blow up as an actor, this comedy actor. And he fell through and, and we had like three days to find another actor. And we were so fortunate to then be like, okay, who are we finding? I saw Alan came on board and, and he um, was interested in doing it. And, uh, and I thought, this is the perfect combination. But it really deepened the material. If it had been the original actor, it could have been a little a little hammier and, and more comedy with less of the grounding force behind it that made it uh, sort of withstand the test of time, you know? I think it was the honesty between them and the genuine emotion that makes people at the end of the day love the movie rather than just sort of like it. I, I think it's because Dale's character is just such a giver, you know? Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> he came up with that hat, too. He made that hat. He, he came up to me and he said, I kind of want a hat that says giver across the top of it. What do you think? I said, That's fantastic. Let's make it. Um, these guys brought so much to the game. And that, that's really the fun thing about writing and directing. It's like you write, you write, you write, write. And then, and then you set it aside. And then you have all these other creative teams come in. And, um, and they're so additive. You know, I mean, like the, the production designer, John Black, from from Calgary and we were, you know, you're like in the middle of nowhere, but he had worked on sets like Lonesome Dove and they, they had done big films out there and he knew what he was doing. And he, he, um, he saved us from being in a forest that we just couldn't shoot it. Like originally we were scouting in like these, these Aspen tree forests, you know, and they're like dense and, and skinny little trees. And um, we just couldn't find the forest where we were scouting and he knew where one was. And, um, I'm telling you, if we ended up shooting in this, like, it just would have changed the entire vibe of the film. If it was these, like, white ash tree looking things and they're walking through it, as opposed to these, like, dark, brooding um, pine trees, you know, and, and evergreen trees. And, um, so, you know, you're, you're so blessed to surround yourself with a team that is, is smarter than you. <laughs> you know, I like to surround myself with people that are, that are more talented and smarter than me. And that way you're going to make a great movie. Um, yeah. So that, that was, that was cool. I think that's the testament of good leadership, which the director is, is when you don't mind having other people be smarter than you in other spots. Cause some people, when they're leaders, they think they have to be the best of everything, but they, they don't realize if you delegate it well and have the correct people with you, you are so, you're so much more able to have a better end result because you're not, you're not yeah. trying to, put it all on your shoulders. 
hundred percent. And I don't think you have to be the best at anything. I think you, um, you have to be observant to what you want and what works, what's working, you know? And sometimes it just takes sitting back and, and watching and then, and then trying to keep your mind open um, and allowing mistakes to happen and allowing sometimes you, what you think is going to work is not the thing that's working. It's the other thing. And um, I always do a take like, you know, Tyler or Alan would, would approach me. You, usually Tyler would have a way of doing things like, what if I do it like this? Like, and he'd have a version of it. He'd say, great, let's do it. And he would do it and he would improv lines and do all these different things. And, and I'd be like, that's cool. Okay, let's try another one. And he'd do it again. And then he'd be like, well, what do you think? And I'd say, do you want to try one with the lines? And he'd say, yeah, let's do that. And then once he was trying it with the lines, kind of had this improv. He already had the intentions and the casual improv feel to it. And it would come to life. And most of the script is really scripted. There are some areas where uh, a few improv moments were just were just golden and uh, and are in the movie. But a lot of it was scripted, and it just sort of came to life. But I allowed a lot of improv and uh, around the, that. And ultimately, I think that just gave people a sense that that their point of view and their thoughts about what things should be really counted, you know, and it allowed them to really invest themselves. Uh, and that's, that's the way I like to lead. You're, that's the way I like to direct a movie and lead is, is, is to really hire the best people I can and really put a lot of faith into what they're bringing to the table. Yeah, because the both of them in this movie, you don't see them acting, which mm-hmm. I think is a testament to them and to you for allowing that, um, you know, for him to do his improv things, like you said a couple times prior, because that way it got him into the character and it just seems to come more natural, not like they're trying to – I'm sure you've seen films where you can just tell they're just moving from point to point, and you don't feel it being realistic to that character. Yeah. And in both of them, yeah. you can just feel it being that realism going along the whole way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like it was, it was magical. I mean, I really do see it outside of me as well. Like, it's sort of its own being. It's kind of like raising kids, making a movie where – you have a lot to do with it, but you don't have everything to do with it. They're their own people. They're their own being. They have their own lives. And you're just trying to nurture them into being the best people they can be. Um, and it's not, it's not like, like I'm talking to you about it. It's, it's my film. I call it, I guess I can call it my film, but it's not really, it's our film. It's everybody who's in it, in it film. And it's, uh, and it's its own, it's its own creature. And it moves on. And that's why you can kind of be proud of it or disappointed in some stuff from a distance. Like, it's kind of like a parent, you know. And I think the hardest person to ever please with the film is the person who directed the film. Because you're always, every filmmaker I've talked to is always like, well, I could have done this if I had this. And, you know, which which is true of everything in life. And I think you've said this before. It's part of that letting it go. This is what I had to, this is what I had time to do. This is what we did. And we did this instead of yeah instead of being a monday night quarterback or monday morning quarterback but also knowing that like sometimes the the box that keeps you in um like whether it's the budget or like stipulations about where you're going to shoot whether it was in canada or somebody else or else or even the cast to get to put there's always you're always kind of put into a box of what you can and can't do and to try to make that work for you and you know the reason why i wanted to do tucker and dale as a first film was because it 
it, it, those movies that I was satirizing were all made for a dime. You know, all of those filmmakers that made, you know, horror movies that that time period that I, I was I was I was satirizing had had a really shit budget too, and they had to make things work on you know fifteen days of shooting and stuff. And so I thought, well, this will work for us to our advantage. And anything that feels if it feels a little loose and crude, it'll kind of add to the feel of a of a nineteen seventies horror film. Oh, it it does it does and you know have that feeling going with it where you got the Texas Chainsaw, you got the Evil Dead. I mean that that cabin that was built was one of the best cabins, you know, for, for that thing. And I still love it when they're like, Oh, it's paradise or it's beautiful. It, it, they both love it. And everybody else looking at it, it's like, Oh, you, you go there to die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where my production designer really came through for me. Um, Cause I had, I had images of two cabins. One was um, from evil dead and the other one was from wrong turn. And I was like, I kind of want a merging of these two kind of cabins, but like, it's an old vacation. It's like a dilapidated old cabin that they scored. And, um, and then I was like looking for it in the woods. Like maybe we'll just find one from, you see these dilapidated cabins in places and then we'll just inhabit it and shoot in it. But I was like innocent enough to think that was going to work. And my production was like, no, like we can't go load in like a big dolly and shoot in an old dilapidated cabin. Like, I'll build it. I was like, you could build a cabin? We're shooting in like two weeks. He's like, I'll build it. And it has to have gas. It has to have these tanks in it so we can create a gas explosion. And um, and we can shoot through windows and all that stuff. And so he built this thing in like two weeks. And um, and it, it worked perfectly. Like, it couldn't, it couldn't, wouldn't have been shot as well without that. And then other nightmare things happened because we were going to shoot. And this is probably in the end helped the film. But I had this huge sequence planned in a, a, an actual logging facility. Um, and it was this huge like scene where there's, there's these conveyor belts and it's somewhat modern. And there's like conveyor belts shooting logs down and, and they're like riding on conveyor belts and jumping over logs. And, and uh, this is the, the third act of course. And, and they get into fight. And then my producer comes up to me on like, day 12 of shooting and he's like by the way this shoot is completely out of money we cannot have any more locations you get like four more days to shoot or something it was like six more days and then it's over and i was like what do you mean no more locations like we're supposed to shoot at this this big logging facility and he's like no we're not shooting it i was like well, where the hell are we going to shoot he's like find something else and then on the property that we were shooting on there was this this old barn and my production designer says, well, maybe like, what do you think of turning this barn into like a lot old logging camp? And I was like, fine, let's do that. They got a, a, a log, like a woodcutter and all that stuff was just brought in. And then we did our third act in one space and um, saved us a lot of time, but we didn't have all the, the highfalutin sort of action mechanisms that I thought we were going to. But in a way, I think it worked better and it kept the film grounded in a sense of it didn't get too wacky and i was always trying to do that like if all of a sudden we we're in this big logging facility that could feel like it could feel out of place compared to the rest of the film so sometimes those those budgetary constraints actually keep you in line and make things work and i 
ultimately kind of appreciate them. Now, one of the things that when I was do, when we did the review of the movie, I was noticing this time when watching, you know, when when you're watching it just to watch and enjoy, you have one type of lens going on when you're watching it, and when you're watching it to talk about it later on and and you know to give other people impressions of it. I was watching it in a different way because it's it's Tucker and Dale versus evil, and one of the things I was thinking of, you have the physical manifestation of evil, and then the non-physical manifestation of evil, and what I mean by mm-hmm. non-physical is everybody's perceptions and that's what the whole movie is about. And, and yeah, and I was, I was just like, this movie is so applicable to things that have been going on for decades and decades. It's still applicable today where people just, Oh, that person is like that just by judging them by what they look like or whatever. I remember when I came back from a camping trip and I was, I stopped by a store and I had the beard, you know, and I, and I was, you know, yeah, and, I, and and they wouldn't take they they're they're like watching me in the store the whole time because they're always oh, yeah. going to steal. So I know what it's like when you come in and people are just like, "Who is that guy?" You know, because I mean, I, I didn't look, yeah, I don't look like a you know, like I normally would. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that's what the film ultimately is about. It's about um, prejudice, you know, and it's about uh, you know, there's something about life that. The world that you think is there is the one that is created. And then you actually live in the world. If you think the world is a hostile and awful place, most of the people who think that way find, find validation that the world is a hostile and awful place. And then wherever they go, they see hostility and awfulness and they are constantly in conflict with it. And so there's something about the way the world works is that our perceptions is created in reality. And so that, that evil was that this perception of, and you know, one of the guys, I had to have the one character that didn't think that way, that wasn't prejudiced. It was like, guys, it's just a cabin. What's the big deal, you know? And he, he probably just took her in there, you know, to, to give her breakfast. And he was right, you know? <laughs> but he's the guy that dies first. And um, and and he's, when push comes to shove, that he's running from the guy, from, from Alan, from Tucker, with the chainsaw over his head and everything. And he's like, damn, you're right. He is evil. But he dies too early and he sees the bee. You'll remember the bee lands on his nose and he has a moment of recognition, like right before he dies, where he says, oh my God, that's what was happening. He was running from bees and that's why he passed them. It was really important that I get the moment when when he's running with the chainsaw and he passes the guy. And he's like slowing down, like, wait a minute. That guy just passed me with the chainsaw. What's happening? And then boom, he dies. So, um, yeah, it, that film was about, and, and to do a comedy about prejudice is not super easy and it's not very frequent. Um, but I, I do appreciate it when people see the deeper levels of Tucker and Dale, because a lot of people just see it for the comedy that it is. But I was really trying to like, to pull out those, those themes that are reflective of society and are really meaningful to me, you know? And for me, movies that deal with certain topics I, I enjoy some movies that deal with it head on and you know going in they're going to deal with a serious topic but i think for general public to get your message out even better is to do it in that subtle way like you do so the message is there mm-hmm. if if you look at it you'll see it but it's subconsciously it's still there and i think that mm-hmm. works a lot better like um star trek the original series and all the, you know the other star treks you know, they're set so far in the future that they never talk about 
all these issues that we're dealing with nowadays because they've resolved them. And so those, those, those things aren't brought up because that those issues have been taken care of. Oh, that was, and they do bring it up. They say, Oh, that was something that happened back at, you know, such and such a time. And we've gone beyond. And I think that's the message you want to get is that we are improving and getting better at all times. And, and I think those movies set the goal and your movie dealing with it at the same time, showing that this is what, you know, people have. And I remember when I worked for the Red Cross teaching CPR classes, there are certain locations people would say, oh, if you go there, you're going to have issues. There's going to be low literacy. There are going to be this and this and this. And I would go there and I'll do my best to have no preconceived notion, just go in. And sometimes yeah, you would encounter that, but the students would go, you go in there and you treat each student individually as best you can as you go across them. And the experience is a lot mm -hmm. better and I think that's the hardest thing is for people to yeah. not succumb to preconceived notions. And normally when people tell me those yeah. things, I fight it. It's like, no, no, no. I'm going to go in and find out what yeah. it really is like. Yeah. And also bad guys are good guys in their own mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so it's fun to create this like real villain character that really thought he was Batman, you know, and he was, he was going to try to save his friends in the world from like this awful, these awful evil hillbillies but he was not ever able to see the other side of the story. And it, you know, I mean, this was made before even the, the, the real like dichotomy we have in our society, it was already happening. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of a timeless tale, right. Of just being able, unable to see somebody else's point of view. And, uh, and that's what the film was. And that's why I got to shoot, you know, a whole different film for the college kids side of things. It was, I would shoot things um, with a different feel, the point of view, and there were three different points of view, the past the college kids' points of view and, and Tucker and Dale. And, uh, you know, and in the past, something really horrible did happen that, that caused a uh, prejudice that then infiltrated the present for these kids. And I, I just think all of that is very... You know, it really is something happened. And that to me is what comedy is. It's when you take something that is, is life and it is very truthful and you accelerate, you put accelerant on it, you light it on fire. And, uh, and then it's absurdity, but it's absurdity with truth. If comedy doesn't have the truth, I really feel comedy doesn't land well, you know, so it definitely needs the truth. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I struggle with some types of comedy that are super broad that I still like, but, um, you know, you know, even the Farley brothers kind of stuff, I, I, I do like it. It's just sometimes it's so broad and it lacks the, the humanity to it. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I like the, the airplane movies and that, like my, my son, I still watch those airplane movies. I think they're just so fantastic. Um, that is, I wish sort of, sort of some more of those type of movies were being made right now. Comedy is it's so tough to make. And, and even the studio executives I deal with now, they don't, they'll tell me things like, that's funny, but let's bring it down. That's funny, but let's bring it down. And let's not do that. And, um, you know, I find myself veering sometimes more into horror or, 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 or more into straight comedy. But it's very hard to do horror comedy, mainly because the, Talk about preconceptions. The studio executives, they don't think they can work financially. And so they don't. But like Tucker and Dale was never given a chance to work financially. 
And so the people would point to Tucker and Dale and they say, yeah, but it, what did it do in the theaters? Like it wasn't brought to the theaters. Like you never gave it a chance. There was no advertising. Look what it's done since then. Um, so it's rare. Sometimes, you know, like Zombieland was brought to the public and that was a huge success. And, and um, those guys are great, but um, it's tough to break that, that seal, that wall, that they just don't perceive it as being a viable genre and you kind of always like have to smash through it. Like, it's the best genre. Dark black comedy is the best. I've, I've talked to other um, actors. Um, and Ron Perlman was one who put it probably the best. He, he, he hates dealing with the suits. You know, he, he does, he'll do, he'll do a project yeah. for the money and then he'll do Then he'll do a project or two for him on the independent yeah. side. And then that way he doesn't have to do any, and he noticed, like he said, the first time he did an independent project, um, with the with Del Toro, he said, "What well, everything's different." Because he realized the suits aren't here, and it was just and he loved that creative freedom to be able to do that expression. And I think that's what exactly what you're talking about is that you got these suits, these people that are looking at, well, this is supposed to work this way, that way, and they're trying to put together this 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 thing from different parts that were never meant to be put together. Instead of allowing the creator that freedom yeah. and by realize they don't think they realize sometimes if you let the, if you let the person go, now sometimes it doesn't yeah. work well when you let somebody go, but I mean, you, you give them that chance to go to that vision. Usually you're yeah. going to get something that's very well received. Yeah. And I just think that usually that happens because either the suits are too busy to deal with you or they're too incompetent, but it's one of the two. And that's the best case scenario. <laughs> the other scenario is where they're, they are focused on you and they're, they're both competent, you know, but there, there's a lot of oversight and um, there's a lot of that nowadays. I mean, I, I think maybe it's just inevitable as I been in the industry more, like there's a lot more control. There's a lot more notes. I go through a script, goes through a process and, you know, I got to get paid. So you, you do the notes people say, you change things, you know, and, uh, and sometimes you do it grudgingly, but you kind of, you kind of like, you do it because you've got to, you want to make a movie and you want to uh, get a paycheck at the same time. So, um, and, and you try to make the notes work that, that work for the project. Uh, but it is, it is different than when I first started and you would just write for your own pleasure. You would just write something that cracked you up and, uh, and not have a million people giving notes on it. I might as well ask you this because I saw, online back when I first saw Tucker and Dale versus Eva, I remember looking it up, you know, like five or six years ago and people were talking about Tucker and Dale versus evil Two. Will it ever happen? And I'm just going to ask you that way you could tell these people if it's ever going to happen or not. And we want personally just to give you my little bit of feeling. I, I'm not always big into the sequels. My thing is you hit that lightning. It's great. I want to, if you have an idea that you're really passionate about, go for it. And I'll probably enjoy yeah. it, but if you have no idea, like if you think that's done, to me, then it's done. Move on to the next work, and that's my way of looking. Well, see, at so it. I, I still appreciate that, and I, to me, I feel the same way. And I um, look, there was a point right after the film kind of came out, and it seemed to have some success. That I was like, okay, if you want to do a sequel, I was open to it. Here's the problem: like I, I just wanted to get the movie made, and I sold my rights to the movie. Like I don't own those rights. Mm. And secondly, but I've, 
kind of fought very hard to not let a bad sequel get made. Because I think the reason why the film has cult status is because it is one of a kind and it didn't go out there and whore itself out for more money. <laughs> and uh, it didn't sell itself out. You know, everybody, every so many things right now, it just feels like, yeah, somebody did something cool and now it's like a sellout and they just want to make as much money off it as possible. But it reduces the artistic value of the original vision. I, I feel that way. Maybe I'm a bit of a purist, but I do feel that way. And so I fought, I fought tooth and nail to not let a bad sequel come out um, or a sequel that just didn't, didn't go, didn't live up to the original. And the part of the thing that worked so well about the original is that it was so unexpected. Right. And so if you're doing the same thing, like a sequel, you want it to be, you want it to be new, but the same. And so, um, yeah, there was a potential, like if, if there was like, energy behind it i would have wanted to turn alan and and tyler into like abbott and costello and just do like yeah let's make a horror franchise with these two incredibly talented fun comedy characters rolling through it but once the film was like successful enough you talk about like the suits there was a lot of like push toward like this is the way it should be or that's the way it was to be and i didn't control the rights and i didn't want it to be I didn't want it to be the wrong thing, you know, and, 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 and it was years and years after that people started coming back to me and saying like, Hey, is this going to be a sequel? Um, and, and it's funny because like a film that we thought kind of went away, like we were like, eh, I made this film. It was really cool. Like it was very funny after I had come out of film school, like I told you. And then after directing Ducker and Dale, I kind of went back to my old job, which was crewing on films. And so I remember like, I had just gone to the Sundance and my film didn't sell. And then I'm, I'm pushing along a dolly cart and some dude's like, Hey man, didn't you just make that film Tucker and Dale? And I was on like a low budget film set, you know, and working for like $150 a day, which, you know, is money. And, but um, it wasn't great money, you know? And I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, how did that go? I'm like, well, you know, it went okay. I'm went to Sundance, but we didn't sell. And, and, and so for years it was like, I'm just, I'm working in crew and doing my thing. And, and then it wasn't until years and years later, it like really took off. And then everybody was like, are you doing a, doing a sequel? And it was a weird roundabout. And then um, I didn't own the rights and it just wasn't a clean process to get into doing a sequel. Um, I think there are some people that, with that said, I think there are some people that want to exploit the title that I don't necessarily know if I will be able to stop or encourage or, or anything, but, um, you know, I don't know. It, it, it could probably be, but look, the two, if, if Alan and Tyler wanted to do it again and, and do Tucker and Dale too, or, or do a TV version, I think it could be a great show because they're so good. Um, I think it was a, a gym and a moment in time and it was like catching fire. And I don't know if we can catch that, catch lightning in a bottle like we did again. Um, and I hate to repeat, you know, I just personally, as an artist, hate to do, try to repeat myself. Let's do something new, folks. Anyway, so I have a lot of feelings about it. But ultimately, I, um, you know, a lot of people were bummed out to not get a sequel to this movie. And I feel bad. Sometimes I think that's why I've withdrawn and not like 
engaged in a huge, huge fan base and stuff because I just get a lot of grief for not doing Tucker and Dale too. And, and I feel bad kind of about it, but ultimately I think it's better as an individual standalone movie. I, I just do. And I think that, I think that, you know, if you watch the boards or anything, like you see people get so excited about a sequel for something. Can't believe this is finally happening. Sequel, sequel comes out. People are disappointed. Um, that bar, the thing that worked so well for Tucker and Dale is the bar was down here. It was like, everybody was still watches this movie. They see the poster art and stuff, and they're like, there's no way this movie's good. And then it's like, well, halfway, you know, uh, 10 minutes in the movie, you're like, I kind of liked this. 20 minutes in, you're like, I really liked it. And it builds on you, and you love it. Now, to do Tucker and Dale 2, the bar is like up here, because everybody loves the original. And I guess I don't know. Why do we want to hurt ourselves like that? <laughs> oh, and as I, as I said, pre preface in the question, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. I'm, it's my son, Ben always says, like, I wish they'd come out the sequel. I'm like, well, why? What, what would the story be? I mean, what, where would they go? They already did Tucker and Dale versus evil. What is it going to be Tucker and Dale versus aliens? I mean, you know, there's only so much, yeah. you know, I'd rather they go in a different creative direction. If they don't have something that they're totally passionate about, then, because I've seen so many sequels that don't do well. There's there are sequels as we both know that that are very successful and that that you know that don't ruin the first one. Or sometimes in, in some cases people argue surpassed it. Like you know, Empire Strikes Back. Some people argues better than The New Hope. Or you got the Raiders. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When you got you know, and people love the first course, three. Yeah. But yeah. You know, to, to me it just depends on what the topic is. Right, and I think the action genre is, is sequels are infinite, right? If you're if you're doing action movies, yeah, everybody just wants to see more action. Uh, comedies are a little bit more difficult; they can be done because you have these lovable comedy characters. But a comedy that is about reversals, a reversal of a genre, a genre twist, is really tough. I mean, I would I would say Scream did it, but you're also, I mean, they made a kind of cool sequel, but you're also talking about like, like, dude, don't get me wrong. If somebody, if they came to me and they said, we're well, going to, you know, pay you a million dollars to do this or something. I I'd do it the best I could. Uh, when you have a franchise like scream that is going to the theaters and they're the, the studio system is like pouring money into it. If Tucker and Dale, if they were said to me, we want to do Tucker Dale again, but instead of giving you, you know, a million and a half dollars, we're going to give you $20 million at that time, or 30, I would be like, fuck yeah, let's have this big ass Tuckerdale action. And you know what would probably happen? It wouldn't be as good for $30 million, but I would try, you know? Instead, it was kind of like, let's do Tucker and Dale, and you know, you'll get luck be lucky if you get paid again. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, let's not mess up the whole, the whole first movie for, you know, for something that is just, is, is not going to escalate. It's not going to be like, not just you'll be lucky, but you'll have this small budget, all that stuff. Like let's, let's increase our toys and our, our, our possibilities with a new movie. So yeah, anyway, it, it's, uh, it got shelved for long enough that I think that, um, I think there's some dreams of it still happening, but for me, I, 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 I'm with you. I really hope it doesn't happen. And I just want it to stand alone. And for those that are, that are looking for the sequel or hoping for a sequel, I always say it's always best to be left wanting more. 
You know, you, you want people to want more because if you go, if you get it where people are like, oh yeah, we're done with it, then you know you went too far. I think by having people wanting a sequel, even though you hope there, you know, I mean, you and I both think that there should not be a sequel. I think that shows how much people love the movie. And I think that's always yeah. a good sign where people, instead of saying, oh, we don't want to see anything more of this, they want to see more like it, but it doesn't have to necessarily be Tucker and Dara versus evil. It could be little evil. <laughs> good segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is actually a very different movie, um, but it's in the same genre. And, and that was kind of a choice to try to do something tonally different that was still in a horror comedy genre. And, uh, and, and it really different experience, you know, it was slightly more money, but still strained for, for the budget, the small budget that it was. Um, and I think we were able to pull off some cool stuff for how little it was made for. Um, but, and have a cool cast and, and it, that movie was really, and that's why I say movies are like kids. Like you think maybe your kids would be exactly the same because they have the same parents, but they're totally different people. And, um, Little Evil kind of came out of, it came out of the devil child genre, obviously. It came out of like the omen and stuff, but it also came out because I was raising uh, a, a child at that point, just one. And I thought, wow, kids can be, they can say things that are evil. They can, um, they're not, they don't have the same like moral compass, moral foundations. And, uh, and I just thought it'd be funny to take a, a stepdad and, and throw him into it out of the blue so he's a, uh, just got married and he has like a kid like Damien from the Omen mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't know how to treat him, but wants to be accepted by him because he loves his mother. You know? So that was the impetus of that. Cause I kind of understood it. And, uh, and it was, uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. I think that movie, it requires a different uh, type of, of watching. And, and, but to me, I've, I've watched it at times. I, of course I'm editing it. I've watched it. Every, everything I've done, but I watched that movie t- t- tons and tons and tons of times, hundreds of times. And there's a, a type of comedy that Adam Scott delivers, which is so subtle and, and quiet. It's so, it's like the opposite of Tucker and Dale. But there are times when I've watched and I just died laughing at the way he delivers the lines. And, uh, and other times where I just don't have time, like I'd be in a room, but I just didn't have time when I was editing. And I was like, oh, we need to snazz this up. We need to speed it up. Like, why is it slow in these parts? And uh, so it was really a different experience. And I, and I, uh, but I appreciate it. I really, I really uh, love that film as well. So, what I like about that film, well, of course, I love the Omen, you know, and Rosemary's Baby, which to me it, it seemed like to be the cross, the cross between those two, and then moved into with the comedy. And yeah. both those films have something in common. It's that it's got more of a slow burn going with it. So I think if you look, if you know those two films well, then as for you talking about like, you know, moving along or whatever, I'm, I'm already with it because I'm realizing it's, it's going to build up into a nice crescendo. And yeah, Adam Scott does such an excellent job of, of the, you said playing it. I mean, he, cause he's underplaying the stuff where he's being the straight man to all the stuff going around him. And the character Al, was just marvelous, you know, and I, I, I enjoyed yeah. that character so much. His, his coworker, his, uh, also his stepdad and, uh, um, yeah. monster truck loving character that 
Al is. <laughs> right. It, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, to work with, um, I, you know, I, 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 I really wanted to work with Adam on this and, um, and it was, he, we were looking for the character that would play Al for a long time. And it was, it was hard to find who was going to play Al. Um, but I really wanted uh, him to, you know, I didn't want to give definition whether he was like trans or whatever, but I wanted Al to be like this woman that had a totally male uh, uh, personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it just not discuss whether Al was uh, trans or something, but it, and it didn't matter. And, uh, and then we found Adam suggested Bridget Everett and we auditioned Bridget. She didn't want to do it. She was so stressed out. And she, she was like, I would do these auditions with her on, on zoom, even before zoom was a thing, right? It was, uh, um, we, we would do these live auditions and she was like sweating and she's like, you like, I hate this. I hate this. I don't want to audition for you. I don't want to do this movie. Just, just let this go. And I was like, but you like the movie. She's like, I love the movie. I wish you luck. I don't want to audition for it. I said, Bridget, you're fantastic. You're a fantastic actress. I already know that. I, I, all I want you to do is you, you have this role, this like leading role alongside Adam Scott, and it's going to steal the show. I just need you to read a few lines and do this thing. And she's like, I didn't think she was going to send in anything. And then I get the, this, this um, recording sent into my email and it's her just killing it. I call her and Bridget, will you please just come do this movie? And she's like one of those people, she doesn't really want to be an actor. She wasn't sure. And she's just this fantastic actress. And, um, and she brought that character to life. And, and it just, it was the kind of contrast I needed in a, in a unique way. Um, from Adam's really deadpan comedy, I needed somebody that just brought like, like the, the energy to the comedy. So, um, yeah, and then the group of guys that we got alongside were just really funny too. So, yeah. But the one thing I want to mention with Al, you brought up, you know, was Al transgendered? Was Al bisexual? Was Al this? I didn't care. I just cared about Al because yeah. Al was full fleshed as a character because. Al loves baseball. Al loves the big trucks. Al likes this and that. Al's, Al's really backing Gary, you know, and very supportive of Gary's character. So Al was a fully developed character. And I think what I liked about it is you didn't bring it up because obviously Gary didn't care. Nobody around cared. That's the, yeah. that's the point. <laughs> and that's the way life is, right? It's like a movie that just like over explains something or tries to get to into it i i mean you don't you don't talk about these things when you're friends with somebody they're just the person they are and uh and i think you know in some ways to get more acceptance of of people who are different you just have to be familiar with like it's the unfamiliarity to whatever to like gay people or whatever any anybody who is prejudiced is because they're unfamiliar with the other person and so there's like a part of me just wanted to bring a familiarity to somebody who, you know, maybe they were, maybe they weren't transgender. It just doesn't matter. And they're just lovable people. And, um, yeah, it, it, I did get some, um, it, it was just happening a little before, like now there's just this wave of films that are 
all like you know you're gonna have tons of transgender people and and ethnic and you have to have ethnically diverse people i think even now the oscars won't accept you if you don't have an ethnically diverse film which you know i well you know i don't know about that but i do will say that all of that is good i don't really want to see it mandated i mean come on like the, the way the pendulum has swung is it almost borders on the absurd because nobody was doing that. Even when I made Alice this character, people were like, wow, this is revolutionary. And now everybody's jumping on the bandwagon so much that it's almost, it's almost just it's watering down any sort of impact. Yeah. Cause for the people to know this movie came out, what, 2017. So yeah, you were, you were ahead of the time. But like I said, what I like about it is like I mentioned with Star Trek, you know, Nobody should care. And I think by having that way, yeah. by not bringing it up, just, just everybody's part of the same neighborhood. All the other stepdads, when you have their stepdad group, you know, and everything, the little counseling group, nobody cared. It was just, that's Al, yeah. you know, and that's, that's the whole point. And I think that was, um, so by, by doing that, just like you did with the Tucker and Dale versus evil, it's, it's, it can be there if people want to look at it, they could see it. If you just want to enjoy the movie, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, there's so many layers to it. That's what I like about it. That, yeah, that's, that, that was exactly the point. That was exactly the way I wanted to treat that. And, and Bridget was on board with that and everybody was. And, it, um, and then ultimately, you know, like the, the films I do are essentially love stories inside of horrendous world, worlds. And this was a love story between a stepfather and, and a stepson. And for me, I always say like when my first son was born, my wife, as soon as he was born, looks over me, I'm in the operating room where the, where he's born. And she looks over me with tears in her eyes and said, and she looks and she goes, I love him so much. And for a woman, I think that connection with the child is, is can be, I am sure this is different for different people, but for her, it was very immediate. And, and it took me a bit, you know, it took me like looking at him like, whoa, this is a trip. Like little kid, this, this hot, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. How was I going to be a parent? Um, bonding with him. I, it, it took me a bit to fall in love with my child. And so I kind of wanted to do a story that was a metaphor from that, but from the stepfather perspective. And, um, and then ultimately it's about, you know, it doesn't matter whether your kid's evil or good or bad or anything in between you're just going to love them and uh you know there's deeper themes in that too like and by that love you'll kind of overcome their own disabilities whether they're you know have like dyslexia or they're the antichrist um you know you want to love them enough <laughs> That should be you the want to them this, this interview. Dick's less, you know, overcome these barriers like dyslexia or, or the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Overcoming those barriers, you know, and, and so um, you want to, you know, love, love will cure those things. And, and so, you know, it's a little corny, but uh, you have enough horror in there. And, and in some ways, the thing that's fun is, is to write horror, corny horror movies. Like, Tucker and Dale has these element of like sweetness too about this guy that just falls in love with this girl that's out of his league and, you know, wants to be with, wants to like, and she likes it too. And, and that it's that simple, you know, but it's thrown into this world of total insanity and horror. Now you had a great 
child actor and, and Owen, Owen Atlas playing Lucas. I mean, he, he pulled off the Damien look perfectly and the whole thing. And then of course was able to change as the movie required him to change. Cause for a while he didn't really speak at all, but he just had to do the glaring. And then of course, as the, as the movie goes on, his character changes as they bond and as him and Gary bond and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that was, again, I don't know how you, I don't know where you, you had a casting director or whether you saw him or whatever, but it was very good luck to get a, you know, to get a child actor that fits so well. Yeah, it was good luck. We did work really hard to find the right kid. And um, it's always a little bit of luck too, but um, you have our, our, our casting director was fantastic. And we went through a ton of, um, a ton of child actors. And, and this guy just not only had the look, the thing I'm always amazed with children, child actors, and I, I don't really suggest it to anybody to be one or to be the parent of one. But, you know, if you're the parent of one that can't not do it, then, then you have no choice. You know, you don't want to force a kid to do this stuff. But then he's so mature. You know, they have these kids, like he's only six or seven years old at the time. He was, no, he was eight years old. But he had a maturity that he just understood the script. He understood where the, the how to do the read, and um, and uh, it sometimes it almost feels like an old soul, like like he was reincarnated and was transcendent and just you know was there to to, to bequeath wisdom upon us all. Um, and he was so into playing the evil look and and didn't worry at all about like you know how will people perceive me. Sometimes I think like I. You know, what did the kid from The Omen, I think I read about him at one point, like I think he quit acting, the kid from The Omen, because he was so hounded for, for doing The Omen and everybody just perceived him as being evil. But um, now Owen really invested in this and I think he really appreciated that transition into being a good good guy and he, he embraced it um, fully. So so yeah, we were blessed, blessed to get him for sure. And you also had two other very well-known actors in this movie, Clancy Brown, who I love from Highlander and many other things playing the Reverend. And when I saw him, I mean, not, not to get the movie, but there's certain people you see, you know, right away who one of the bad people are. I mean, it's, it's like Basil yeah. Rathbone in the yeah. old movies. And, you know, if you saw, unless he was playing Sherlock Holmes, he was probably the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And that works for this because like, you weren't sure how you'd get to it, but I'd like, I'd liked feeling that, yeah, this dude had baggage, right? And Clancy has such a powerful personality and he doesn't have a lot of scenes between like his intro and, and, and the end. So um, we got him to come out and do it. Yeah, I wanted somebody that would be, you know, there's something about that contrast of Adam Scott just being like, okay, you want to buy this place? It's an old rundown church and it might be evil, um, and this like sort of demented preacher and carrying the weight of it and then not really being in the same world or the same movie. I like that contrast. Um, so I thought Clancy Brown was perfect for that. And I don't know how you were able to pull this casting coup off, but you had Sally Field show up in your movie. I mean, it, it, who would have known you could have got Sally Field to show up in one of your movies? <laughs> That took some arm twisting. That definitely took some arm twisting. And we tried to like, move it so she it didn't really look that much like her. And it, she had this, um, 
this idea of just playing this really wacky character. I will say she is hard to work with. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because you're, you're working with her on set and then all of a sudden you're making a movie and everything. And all of a sudden my mom is like on set, you know, and then I, I'm not only directing a movie and doing all this stuff, but I'm like dealing with my mom. <laughs> and these little things like, oh, you're going to do it that way? And you start like, oh, Jesus. Not only is this my mom saying that, which is annoying, but it's Sally Field saying that, which maybe she has a point. <laughs> you're, you're trying to balance um, the, those two dimensions of you. That's like, this is, this is my mom I grew up with, and she's very kind of motherly to me. And, and yet Sally Field, this amazing actress. And so... Um, yeah, she had this idea to, to kind of uh, dress herself into this dowdy, strange, uh, what did she call it? It was sort of an Eleanor Roosevelt type look. Hmm. And and I think it, it was a really interesting character. A lot of people don't even recognize it's her sometimes. Like, was that Sally Field playing that role? Um, but it was a lot of fun, you know? I mean, you only lived this life once, and I... I thought, well, I don't know how many movies I'm going to get to make. I want to, I want to stick my mom in one of them, um, and and do it, get to do a scene with her. So she came down, and uh, it, it became kind of a family affair, uh, having her in uh, there on the movie. And uh, you know, my wife had a small scene in the movie, and my son was in the movie, <laughs> and uh, a very small scene. And who else? My my sister was working on the set. So it was really, it's really fun. I don't know if it's something I would do exactly again, but um, it, it, it it satisfied a bone in my body that just like wants everybody involved. It's like you, you're working with your kids. It's like, I want all of my loved ones to be there, you know, enjoying the experience. You got to, you got to go for it because you you never know how many more movies, like you said, are going to do how many more movies she wants to do. I mean, and all that stuff, but I have to ask you now, you wrote the script, you brought your mother in, and in the movie, her character gets hit by a board and then has a crate drop on her. Now, was there any um, um, thing that she did to you as a parent one time? You're like, I'm going to get revenge. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, a, a fantasy of mine, you know, uh, and then yet for everything to be okay and cool. Uh, I thought it was funny to take um, – you know, she was game for anything, which I thought was so cool. And and then to have this two-time Academy Award-winning actress run out and just get slammed by a board by Adam Scott <laughs> and <laughs> dropped, you know, and like my and it was funny because we had a stunt woman doing it, and my mom was watching. The stunt woman like took a couple, like Adam hit the, her with the board, and and we'd have to kind of cover it in a way that we didn't see the stunt woman's face. And my mom was like, oh, I'll just do that. I was like, no, no, this is my worst nightmare, mom. You can't do it. You're, you're, you're going on 70 years old. Like, you, this is not okay. And she's like, you have no idea how tough I am. Okay, hit me, Adam. <laughs> and, uh, and he took her, like, it was balsa wood, but he, like, takes a swipe at her and she hits the ground. And I'm sitting there behind the camera going, oh, please don't, like, actually get hurt doing this. And, uh, you know, I guess she has to land enough, and then I yell, cut. And then I run over, like, are you okay, Mom? Are you okay? And she's like, are you kidding me? I'm fine. Let's go again. Let's, <laughs> and, I, you know, I got to see how, how tough she is. Um, and so, 
Yeah, it was it was fun. It was really fun to work with her, but then also be a little kind of a kind of a, a, a jerky son in that I I don't I'm a little diminutive toward her. Like I wasn't like heralding her as this incredible figure in there. It was kind of this role where she gets her she gets her butt kicked and <laughs> and she she enjoyed that too. And she um, she cracked the crew up. There was a line in there that I didn't keep in. Where she says, um, uh, right as she's, right as she, the child is getting abducted, she looks over and he says, you can't be serious or something like that. And, and she, she says, it was an improv thing. She's just like, yeah, and I can't, and I'm not the flying nun. And, and then, and then cuts away and the whole crew just tore down laughing their butts off. And, uh, and I thought for a minute I thought I'd have it in the movie, but it just took every it took you so far out of the movie, and it became like about the fact that Sally Field was doing this role, and uh, so that that wasn't quite right. But yeah, it was really cool to have her involved. I was I was going to say just before you said all that story is like here she goes from playing Gidget and the Flying Nun to helping bring about the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's uh, uh you know it's. It, she just likes the work is the thing. Um, she really likes the work of acting. She's, she's really good at it. And um, so I, I, you know, I feel I, it, it was, you know, the other part is like, I talk about how I was telling you before about how I never wanted that to be a part of my life. Like I really wanted to be distinguished separate from that. And, and on a personal level, it was kind of me saying, you know what, it is what it is. Like I'm her son and I'm, proud of it and i can't hide from it and i shouldn't hide from it and hey if i can get sally field to play this little role and bring it to life like why the hell not like um and so um it, it, on a personal level it was me like kind of overcoming some of my like things that held me back as well and uh that's it was really a family family show in that way which i i i I just love if you can include people in your work that you love. That's all. Well, and for those that haven't seen this movie, it's on Netflix and it's a really enjoyable, I think it's what, 90 minutes, 90 ish. Yeah. It's very, <laughs> it's, it's tight. It's 90, 92 minutes or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it really works well. And I, and um, Tucker and Dale versus evil. I know, is it available on Netflix or on Amazon prime? It goes around, you know, like, like I say, it was the distributor that bought it was a very small distributor. So the title is not owned by Netflix or Amazon Prime or anything. You can always buy it, God forbid, on iTunes. Nobody wants to buy the movies anymore. But um, usually it goes through the cycle and Netflix will bring it back or, or Amazon Prime will bring it back. But of course, it's always on uh, iTunes and uh, you can buy it on Amazon and stuff like that. But I would recommend people do what I did and buy the Blu-ray because the Blu-ray has special features and there's one special feature. I forgot to mention, we're talking about Tucker and Dale versus evil, which I really like the college kids point of view. It takes away all the, um, the Tucker and Dale stuff that we know. And it just shows them. And it looks just like those old school horror films, you know, and why they were so scared. And I I think that really balances that because it gives people like, well, why would the college students think this? Because we have that omniscient point of view of knowing both sides, but the college students would only know the one side and it'd be your typical. Yeah, that was, 
that was a fun idea to do. I had to do after after shooting it. I was I was kind of curious what it would look like from the college point of view, and I thought it'd be a good thing to include because they weren't crazy, you know, to think that they were killers. Yes, they brought their prejudice to the table, but um, uh, they 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 saw a lot of awful things, and so sometimes that's the way we have to view life as well. Like sometimes you have to be open to being wrong about your interpretation of a situation. Uh, even when it's clear as day to you that you're right. Um, anyway, I think it's really, it's about that, that thing I think is about 20 minutes and it's worth watching because it just shows the film in a totally different light. And um, the Tao of Pong, if you guys are um, searching on the web, you'll see it. it's available for free on, uh, I think, Vin, Vinmo? Vinmo? Vimeo? Yeah, I think Vinmo has it in its full, Vimeo has it in its full claw. I think it's on YouTube somewhere too. Um, yeah, that was my, my student short film. And, uh, yeah, you could kind of see the evolution of, of my work, I guess. No, exactly. Now, what do you, I still have a ways to go. I hope <laughs> still well, a ways to go. You're, I you're a young man. So, I mean, you know, Clint Eastwood, he's what 90 and he's still doing the film and a, a, a movie a year. And so you, you, yeah. still, you, you still got yeah. decades and decades ahead of you, you know, if, if you're like Mr. Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. I figure I'm holding, I'm saving it for a little, like, Saving it for my, uh, I'm going to be directing at least a film a year by the time I'm, I'm in my 70s. Well, there you go. And what do you have anything that you, that you could talk about that you're working on now? That I'm actually working on quite a few different things, but one of them is um, one of them I really love and have a lot of hope for. We'll see if we get to end up making this is a film called Bride and Doom, which is a film. <laughs> I, I don't want to give away too much of it, but it is it is sort of a horror comedy inside of a wedding, and it's uh, it, it it's a creature movie. It's a creature attack movie. I mean, what I can't give away is that you say, you know, we're kind of playing off. What are the worst things that could happen on your wedding day? And yeah, there's rain and all the fear that you know the parents aren't going to get along or your dress isn't going to be perfect, but it's fucking meteor landing and, and spreading an alien species across your wedding party and attacking all the wedding guests <laughs> and that bringing you closer together is not something you would expect. And so, um, it's a, it's a wedding attack movie. And, uh, so we're, we're, we're pushing that one. That, that's really fun. And then, um, I have another thing I wrote for, with Netflix recently. Um, that is, it's a riff on the Hills have eyes. In a way that I don't even know if we'll call it this in the end, but right now it's called The Hills Have Eyes for You. And it's it's about a, a family, like Hills Have Eyes type family, with a, a rebellious kid in the family that um, is this sort of artist and everybody else just likes to murder people. And he's like this artist lover guy, but he doesn't really fit in with the family and he's really uncomfortable with his and he tries to like be the killer, but he doesn't really, he hasn't really killed people very well. And he falls in love with one of the girls they've captured. He, they fall, he falls in love with the captor. And, and then he has to save her life. He can't, he can't bear to watch her get killed. So then he tries to help her escape. And it's this love story that takes place in a very unlikely venue. Um, and I always think about like the black sheep of a family, you know, being the rebel. But in this case, the rebel is like a kid that just doesn't like murdering people. And so he feels like awful that he doesn't fit in and the rest of his family is so cool. And, and he's just this 
kid who likes to do art and read books and and uh so that's that's a bit of a reversal on that story um and uh and then i have some other things uh oh i have a corporate retreat kind of a disaster show that i'm working on and this musical by the way if we could just sell this musical i have a musical horror comedy that takes place inside of a of a frat of a fraternity it's based on like a fraternity inside of a sort of privileged institutional school that may or may not be corrupted by a demonic presence and they all sing and dance musicals musical numbers <laughs> so that one is awesome but uh we're still looking for the right distributor with that yeah, and hopefully these things come to fruition because i know my speaking for my two children it's all the you know salt tucker and dale versus evil and um i'm joe little evil we we love the sensibility that you're bringing to these movies you know and and, and taking them and, and, and putting that little twist to them with the the humor where it's 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 not like scary movie where it's just so over the top you know and it which you know, which is okay but it does i don't you watch it once and that's it um i like it yeah. where you can put these in you can watch them again and again because you sometimes you'll you'll get a different gag or two yeah. with subsequent viewings and then you also have some seriousness to it so it's not just all one note it has that multi-dimension yeah yeah cool i mean that it's nice talking to you because it's reaffirming that um that target i try to hit you know and uh and, and frankly i'm try they try to talk me out of it a lot like can't we just make it more horror or less comedy or or you you know make it totally silly comedy without some of the darker avenues and more serious parts but i really do like a genre that combines multiple genres in it and uh, i think that's the way life is i think the viewer can tolerate it and and even loves it if it's done right so I appreciate your affirmation. Oh, you're welcome. And, and, and I try to have guests on of, of things that I've seen that I like, you know, and, 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 and that's the whole point. Cause if it, I think if you interview somebody and you didn't, you didn't like anything they've done, it's really going to be a tough interview, but yours is easy because your, your two feature films are like, ah, I like these, you know, and that kind of oh, stuff. Cool. So it's, cool. it works you. nice. And I hope listeners, you got to learn more about Eli and his background and enjoy this and seek out to watch these movies and look for his future work. Um, is there any way people could follow you? Do you have like um, anything? Yeah, I, I'll try to be a little more engaged on that stuff, but you can follow me on, uh, on Facebook. I have a page or, or on Twitter. Um, Eli, if you look up Eli Craig and um, I will be a little more engaged. I kind of like get into my own world with things and, and, uh, and, and I'm not somebody who likes to tweet all the time or something because I, it doesn't do that much for me personally. Um, but um, when I have something about to come out or I have material and, and, and I'll have these conversations that I will, I am more engaged. Um, and if you've made it this far, congratulations. I really appreciate it. I feel like I should give them some, like some prize. Like what would be the prize if you were a big Tucker and Dale fan? Um, oh, I'll tell you this. Okay. This is strange, weird, weird tidbit of information. Not that I don't like him, but I'm glad it didn't happen because the original casting for Tucker and Dale was that Tucker was going to be Jason Sudeikis. And it was before Jason Sudeikis' career kind of like took off a lot. Um, 
And then before that, like, because I was trying to, to cast Tucker and Dale for a couple of years. And the first year I was taking it around, and I just, it was like the year I was just out of film school, and I just written the script. We were taking it around, and I got these two unknown actors that I had utmost faith in. Um, again, I'm so glad it worked out the way it does, but just to show you how random sometimes the way things come together was uh, uh, the first two people attached was Zach Galifianakis and Bradley Cooper. And we, yeah, isn't that insane? And it was right before The Hangover came out. And I was scouting the, like a place to make this film in the UK. And I had meeting, I had a meeting with Zach and he was doing stand up at the time. And I had a meeting with Bradley Cooper and he was just coming off this TV show, this cooking TV show that he played this, this cook. And they were looking to like do something really cool. They both loved this. And I remember sitting down with these financiers in the UK and I had the whole pitch. We had our locations and everything, and it looked like they were going to finance it. And they stopped on this page with our two, our two leads, and they said, "Who are these guys?" And I said, "Well, they're great actors. They're up and coming. They're going to be a big hit someday." And they, they ultimately decided to pass on the film because our our cast wasn't big enough. <laughs> they weren't big enough actors. And then, like, then the next year, Hangover came out, and I was still shopping the script around, and. Uh, and that's what I was like, you know what? We're going to have the opportunity to make it in Canada. Let's get that. I found Tyler Levine. And then for a minute, Jason Sudeikis was in it. And then we found Alan Tudyk. And like the right film came together at the right time. And also probably if I had made it earlier, I wouldn't have learned. Like I said, I was crewing on films and I was um, producing music videos. And I was working all that time in the film industry before I got to shoot my first film. Um, and that taught me so much by the time I was shooting my first feature to have ha have had to work my butt off as a crew in the meantime. It really made sure I, w I was I was ready to do the job of directing that film. So anyway, there was a little tidbit. A friend of mine, when we when we were watching the movie Napoleon, we did a review of it and he was, he's way younger than me. He's like in his early, he's like mid twenties. And he goes, I don't, I couldn't believe I haven't seen this film in such a long time and all this stuff. And I said, and I just saw it like, the day before we did the review. And I said to him, I think film, and in this case, your situation, things happen when they're supposed to happen. You see mm -hmm. the film when you're supposed to see the film. You, can, you can't go back in time and change things. Things happen, I believe, a lot of times when they're meant to happen. Whatever line or whatever happened, that was the movie that was supposed to be made at that time. And it obviously yeah. worked. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it just, Sometimes you're like disappointed when something doesn't work out, but that doesn't mean you give up on it. You just double down and figure out the new way to make it and uh, remain flexible and, 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 and keep working. All right. But thanks again for taking time out of your day um, to, to spend time to converse with me about your films and the things that influenced you growing up and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's really fun talking to you. Uh, you're a great interviewer and congrats on your, uh, your career with your sons. That sounds like a blast. You're, I'm gonna, I might take you up on it and, and involve my son in a podcast here in some years. Because uh, it sounds like a lot of fun to bring your kids together and watch movies and review them. Well, that, that is true because when you get that different generational thing with my daughter being 25, my son being 21, my youngest son is 18, but he doesn't do the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when you watch that film, it's, it's what they bring to it, what you bring to it, 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 it makes great conversation. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah. Well, that's what film's all about. It's bringing people together. So I appreciate it. And it was really fun talking to you and, uh, and, uh, yeah, good luck with things. Well, thank you. And for listeners, um, I hope you join us next time we do either a movie review or another interview. And as always, leave us feedback on diecast movie review podcast at gmail.com or leave us feedback on our Facebook page. Hope everybody has a good day and stay safe. Bye.